I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have WL joining us today. Tom, do you want to get this rolling? Yeah, absolutely. WL, you and I spoke for a little bit the other day, and and, uh, I really wanted to thank you again for being available for the recording. And just before we get started, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in. And if you like the show, please let us know. Just click the like, and if you haven't done so already, click the subscribe. And if you want to support the channel, you can do that through Patreon, and we include a link in the description. WL, um, you you found something interesting in Kentucky. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you how you arrived at that? Sure. Um, uh, I was. Uh, we have several hiking trails here in the county, and um, I needed to take my dog out for a walk, and and we were <clears throat> walking down uh, the trail. It kind of starts out up on top of a hill and it wanders down and kind of gets along a, normally it's kind of a dry creek bed and uh, we'd recently had some heavy rains and it got out of the bank and there was some mud left along the side of the trail and I saw a track in the mud and uh, it was a large barefoot print and uh, I took a couple of photographs of it, and uh, I had posted them. On, we There's a Kentucky Bigfoot Research Organization group here in the state, and everybody was saying, oh, you need to go back and get a plaster cast of it. So uh, I came into town here and finally located some plaster of Paris and went back out there um, and went back to the track. Unfortunately, uh, someone had been on the trail and, stepped on just a part of the track but i was able to make the plaster cast and uh, i have that uh, here it's it doesn't look real human to me but you know i don't know why some guy would be off down way down this trail in his bare feet but well i saw the uh the you sent me some really good pictures of it yeah and i saw that little foot in there i was like and now that now that you explained why it's there, you're like, really? Yeah. Could you have not stepped just three more inches one exactly. way or the other? Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, the the first photographs I've got, you can see, you know, there's no uh, human, you know, the shoe track in there. But somebody sure nailed him uh, while I was gone back to town to get plaster Paris. It is what it is. <laughs> oh, it is. But. Um, you know, I got to say kudos, uh, WL, that you you did it. I mean, you 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 took the extra 
uh, steps, the initiative, you got and you got yourself a really good print. And I got to ask you, is this the first time you've seen a Bigfoot track? Absolutely. Yeah, I um, have had an interest in Sasquatch, Bigfoot, whatever we want to call him. You know, I think it's interesting to read about and to, you know, to see some of the things on YouTube and television over the years. But I have never come across the track and I, you know, I've been some in some pretty squatchy areas, like they say, but. Yeah, well, no, no, that, that's great. Um, you know, kind of, I found interesting was you went into town by the time you got back, it's starting to get dusk. So yeah. you're out there at twilight, which is when these things are out and about. And that's when you're doing your thing and, casting you know casting the tracks was your head on a swivel you know looking around yeah the sun was going down um it hasn't we've had some warm weathers but but that day it was not all that warm and my plaster was not wanting to set up the sun was going down and and, uh, you just i don't know makes you feel kind of odd and i've been out in the woods all you know all my life, I'm an outdoorsman and, you know, hunt and fish and camp. And, you know, I've been out west into some pretty wild country on my own and hiked up into mountains. And so I, I'm not, I don't really get too spooky. Uh, I've just been around the outdoors a lot. But, you know, when you, when you come across a track, it kind of makes you a little more, uh, aware of your situation i guess yeah yeah you're dealing with something (laughs) (laughs) it's you don't run across those every day no and it was a good impression i thought it was a very good one yes yeah i was i was looking at facebook one morning before i started work and i saw the picture come up my feed and i thought oh that's a pretty good track and i just thought well on the whim i'm gonna i'm gonna contact this guy and see what uh what the information is you know you do see some good tracks once in a while and and like you said you know you can have an interest in something but until you really come across something like that uh, yeah. it doesn't set in until you do yeah yeah it, it was just an odd place um i would never walk down that trail barefooted because there's rocks and you know it's it's pretty rough trail um I don't know that I'd, I want to mention exactly where we are, but uh, Central no, no, Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. So that's that's close enough. Um, and you know the the it only superficially resembles a human foot. It's it's too wide. It yeah. does not look like a human foot, but it absolutely looks like a Sasquatch track. Yeah. I know there there were some other there were naysayers in the group that were looking at the track and saying, Oh, it looks this way or it looks that way and then there were other people that were saying, Yeah, it looks looks right and you know. Wait, I'm wait, not, wait, wait. <laughs> you're you're trying to say you guys got naysayers that Will, have we ever run into <laughs> naysayers? Oh never. <laughs> not in this subject. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's new territory for us. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh 
I'm I'm not out there every day finding uh, Bigfoot tracks either. You know. <laughs> how how big was the track? So, do you think? Uh well, one of the photographs I had a tape measure there. I think it it's at least uh, twelve inches. Let me I'll throw a tape on it. I've got it right here. Um, from the back of the hill uh, to the front of the big toe is about 11 and a half inches. Well, it's a juvenile. Yeah. You know, we've seen, we're seeing hey. a lot of juveniles the last couple of years. Yeah. And here's what I, I just want to throw this in real quick as a comment. Um, the juveniles... Whether, you know, if you're, if you're talking 11 inch footprint, you know, again, the naysayers can come out of the woodwork and say, well, that's just some guy out there with bare feet, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the dimensions of the track are completely, they don't look human at all. And they look 100% like Bigfoot. So I'm going to say if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, you know, while I was out there letting this plaster parish set up, I walked around, crossed the little dry creek bed, and there was a sandy area there. And I was looking. I said, surely I can find where they crossed the creek or something. Deer tracks all over the place. And uh, raccoon tracks. You know, there's all kinds of animal tracks in there. But I could not find anywhere along there where there was a entrance or an egress or you know and i looked you know i i just could not see i probably went at least 50 yards up and down that creek looking for any other sign i just could not see it and evidently just came through there and hit that muddy spot and kept on going in the leaves up you know through the woods and never crossed that creek i don't here's a here's a question i've got for you wl and that is um you did bring it to the attention of a a bigfoot society there in kentucky so obviously they wouldn't exist unless there's something out there what do you know about other reports lore sightings and that sort of thing in kentucky um, I knew that knew uh, if I remember, and I'm trying to remember some of the ones that I've read. There was an account up here in the next county up Bullet County, um, and he was um, a former sheriff, I think maybe had had a contact with one, and then um, down in. Uh, I know of one uh, trail cam photograph series uh, that was taken on a film trail camera back years and years ago in uh, Ohio County that uh, a friend of mine who's a very good friend, he lives down there and, and saw the photographs and he said there's no doubt in his mind what it was. Um, I know that there's some... Uh, uh, some of the Bigfoot people 
here in the state are aware of those photographs. But the, the man that took them, he's passed away. I don't know where the images are now. Uh, he did not want any publicity out of it, so they were never made available to anybody. Um, I know of Mammoth Cave is um, not too far from me, um, but that it's a very the national park there at Mammoth Cave is several thousand acres of wooded area runs along the green river and uh, i know of some activity down there um, that people have heard some things maybe had some rocks thrown at them at night and you know some stuff like that going on so um really throughout the whole state uh you know kentucky has some metro areas but most really most of the state is kind of rural and you get over into Eastern Kentucky, you've got the whole Daniel Boone national forest in there. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, we had a guy, Chris in Tennessee that, um, you know, had some interesting sightings and also, I mean, you're right there, you know, you go across the river and there's Ohio. And, and so I think you're in an area where there's, uh, we've got a lot of reports recent ones actually in in that location so uh i gotta hand it to you i i want to thank you for agreeing to come on the show and uh, again i think you have an excellent track there and you know the naysayers are naysayers just <laughs> you know shine them yeah. on <laughs> so yeah now i remember reading one account um of Daniel Boone actually killing one, shooting one. Of course, that would have been back in the 1770s, probably early 1770s, about the time you know when Boonesboro was being settled. But um, you know, evidently they've been around here or theoretically around here for a long time. Well, that's been, uh, Will, that's that's been your position from day one that, you know, if they're in an area, they, they've probably been there historically for, you know, likely centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Long, long time. Yeah. So, uh, well, listen, um, stay in touch. If you get any new sightings or information, uh, get in touch with us. I sure will. And, uh Thank you for asking me to come on your show and um, be glad to you know, keep my eyes open, but it's kind of a rare occurrence, I think, to really find a track on that level. So, yeah, <laughs> you did a good job. All right. Thanks, W.L., and uh, have a great weekend. Much appreciated, All right, same W.L. To you guys. Thank you now. Uh-huh, appreci- uh-huh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, we're going to introduce our second guest for this segment. Tom, you want to do the honors? Absolutely. Uh, we've got Bob from Oregon. Bob, I want to thank you for joining us. And you've got some really interesting encounters that you've had. And we talked a little bit last night. You said that um, uh, you tried to qualify this by saying you hadn't actually seen one of the creatures. And uh, based on everything that you have, the the amount of evidence is, and it's taken in its totality, really adds up to actually, in my opinion, 
better than just having a sighting. So we're going to start from the beginning. And I would, uh, yeah, just start off. You did a really good uh, summary for Will and I. And go ahead and uh, we'll start from the beginning. Okay. Um, so thanks for having me. And um, I live in Southern Oregon. So I've uh, been in the outdoors all my life, hunting my whole adult life. And uh, these experiences span from uh, about 1995 clear on up to 2018, the last time I was uh, anywhere real remote in the woods and in a number of locations between Mount McLaughlin in Southern Oregon, all the way up to the uh, west side of Crater Lake uh, National Park. And so, you know, when you go out into these areas and you hike there frequently or you hunt there, hunters particularly, they'll go out and they familiarize, you get used to the area, you know, the, the layout of the roads, the creeks, uh, where landmarks are, uh, cross country routes that are off trail. You get to know the sounds of the forest, the trees, the brush, the animals, pretty much everything. And so, you know, when something's off, something's different. And so I'll start with the, uh, our hunting grounds that are up on the Rogue-Umpqua Divide. And the Rogue-Umpqua, excuse me, the Rogue-Umpqua Divide is uh, west of Crater Lake, south of Diamond Lake, uh, west of Highway 230. And um, it's all, you guys know, it's all volcanic type landscape out there uh, from all the volcanoes and the Cascades. So there's some rugged, rugged country. And um, so there's a few areas out there I've been dozens of times out there, no issues. And then one time you just, things get quiet. You get this impending feeling. And this is a consistent feature across all of my experiences. You get this impending um, or this fear of impending danger. uh, And like, you need to leave the area. And when I was hunting, I always heeded that. Um, because it was so out of the ordinary for the areas I'd been in before. And so I'd be out there, this feeling would come over me. And of course you start moving slowly out of the area. Uh, And you guys know our brains are wired a certain way. And so when something's out of the ordinary, you, you try to rationalize in your mind uh, to kind of, try and downplay that fear it may be a survival technique or whatever um but as i was moving out of the one area you know during that season we'd go up there and camp for weeks at a time and it was in late august early september every year and that's when a lot of the pine cones would start falling up there uh and you know that sound uh you get to you get to know that sound it's very unique uh And I would hear um, things coming through and like hitting the trees. It was like a rock hitting the tree, essentially, and then down onto the ground or just flat bouncing across the ground. Um, None of them ever really came close to me. Um, And this happened a few times at that location and then uh, about three or four miles away uh, across a different side of this area, 
um, that same sense of dread came over me. Uh, and it was pretty consistently over the years, you know, it was just a few times in each place on varying years, but it was, the areas seemed consistent. Um, and you know, there's a lot of bears and predators up there. Um, I've seen so many bears up there and, you know, our black bears in Oregon, they don't, attack people they just don't the, the only time when you see them they're going to be running away every single time that's why they're so hard to bow hunt um they hear anything and they're and they're just flat gone and these these sounds these feelings um the the things hitting the ground and rolling across the ground um they were just different they were unnerving and of course, the more I talk, think about it today, especially after talking to Tom yesterday, it's a bit disconcerting, you know. Yeah, it is. And uh, I just want to say that I've had that, I think, two times. And there's there's a very strange sense. It's, it's out of the ordinary. It's not anything that I personally could uh, fall back on and say, well, I've experienced this before in my past. It was external just came in and it was uh we have a friend of ours who's uh he's also a law enforcement officer and he's experienced this and he said and tell me if this description matches uh kind of how you felt but he said it sort of felt like being in a graveyard at midnight yeah yeah i thought that was a very good description it's like i don't know when that fear comes over you you feel it inside, you feel it like weight on your body on the outside. It, it's just, unless you've experienced it, it's hard to quantify to people. Well, and the problem is, is you can't pinpoint why it's happening. Right. Uh, I, I talked to a Forest Service employee uh, last fall, and a friend of mine and I were up there, and we ran into her, and we got talking with her, and <clears throat> finally we told her what we're doing, she said, you know, a couple hours ago, I had something happen to me. I've never had experienced this before. And a sense of fear and dread came over me and I just left the area. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that, you know, it's 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 tangible. And anyway, I'll, I'll let you continue on. OK. And and so there's there was one area, um, the Rogum Foot Divide Trail in that area, it kind of hops over a uh, not a super steep mountain but it, it's pretty good and then it drops off into uh, I want to say Fish Creek Valley on the west side but you get near the crest of this hill there's a huge uh, meadow up there and uh, one of those times where the you know I sat on one side of the meadow just kind of seeing what I could see uh, being quiet and that sense of fear came over me and I saw something on the far side of the meadow and it was just a big shape uh, moving amongst the trees. It wasn't moving fast. I, I could not make out what it was, uh, but as I started moving, because the fear had set in, um, it kind of shadowed me for a little while until I 
departed that meadow area back down the trail uh, to head back towards camp. And, you know, the things I'm hunting up there, bear, elk, deer, they don't shadow people. They just don't. They vacate the area, and that's all there is to it. If they know you're there, they're gone. And so that was another uh, one of those experiences I had up there in those hunting grounds. And this span, these experiences, you know, again, it wasn't every time I was out there. Uh, it spanned from 95 to about 2010. That was the last time I uh, bow hunted as my shoulder uh, started deteriorating among other things, you know, uh, getting older. And so, uh, yeah. Do you want me to go on to the next or would you like to discuss the hunting grounds area? Well, I'm just going to comment that you made such an excellent point that there's no other animal. I mean, I've never been shadowed by deer, elk, even bear or mountain lions, I suppose mountain lions could, but, um, right. you know, it's, um, and, and I bring that up because, well, you know what I'm talking about in September, we were shadowed. We were surrounded by five of these things. Right. And I pretty sure it wasn't elk or deer that was uh, coming in and surrounding us. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. And animals, uh, particularly animals that are subject to predators, they're going to uh, move away from you once they know you're there in the most expedient way possible. The only exception being that sometimes if a deer has a fawn, that doe will uh, sometimes uh, kind of come your direction, but then quarter away as its fawn goes another direction to kind of lure you away. But you know, that's an obvious move. You're going to recognize that every time. And they're not going to do it when you're at that far of a distance. Yeah. So going back to this thing, I'm I'm assuming it was just, you're looking into this meadow or an opening and then just inside the tree line where it's this dark shape that was moving or. Right. It was, uh, I don't know, probably trying to guesstimate over the meadow it was probably 30 feet or more inside the uh tree line on the other side and uh so i i just it it looked big whatever it was um it it wasn't hunched down to the ground it it was really hard to gauge the height at that distance but uh it didn't it had no, it, I felt like it knew I was there and it had no interest in leaving the area at all. Did, um, how far was it from where you were? How, 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 how what was the distance across the meadow? I would say 150, 200 yards. Okay. And so, and then inside the tree line, <clears throat> You've got, and I'm just, I know like in Western Oregon, you get a lot of heavy understory, you know, the brushy stuff in there. Right, right. And so you can see this thing moving. Just a thought that came through my head is you can barely see it, but you can see it. Right, right. And, but you're actually, are you in the meadow or are you also in the opposite inside the tree? I'm on the opposite side right uh 
right on the edge of the tree line because uh, I was trying to observe anything coming in or out. And right. I knew there were some game trails that all around the meadow. Uh, it was off off of quite a ways off, probably half a mile off the main Rogumco Divide Trail. Um, mm-hmm. And I had found that place uh, early on in my uh, travels up there while hunting. And so it was a spot I I uh, went a few times, quite a few times. You know, it's interesting. You're sitting there and you can barely see this thing. I'm I'm betting it can see you just fine. And I knew you were mm-hmm. there. Right. I, I had the feeling, uh, you know, you get that feeling, you know something's seen you. Uh, animals have that feeling, and I believe humans have the feeling too. Um, whatever instinct, survival instinct that is. And like I said, it, whatever it was, it wasn't in a big hurry. And it was uh, most certainly it didn't seem interested in leaving the area. Yeah. And, Will, you've talked about this a hundred times. If you see one, and especially moving like this, do you think it's maybe doing a stalking, like setting up a uh, an ambush or checking on the possibility of that? Well, it's hard telling at that point. I mean, usually they're kind of surveying the situation. Probably checking me out to see what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go. And if there are any more people and all that. Right. And there's enough trails around there. I mean, they would be able to... They're not huge trails, but there's enough bare dirt on those trails that they might be able to, you know, if they were trying to be stealthy, it would be easy for them to do so. Because I did the same thing as a bow hunter. Yeah, I think they're very, very adept at being stealthy. Um, wow, yeah, that was that's very interesting. Um, yeah, so let's and what's uh, let's go on to the next situation that you ran into. So uh, the next situation was in uh, August of 2013. This was a, a backpacking trip, and when we, we used to go backpacking. Uh, in the Sky Lakes area quite a bit. Um, we'd always go in July or August because the uh, most of the snow had melted and it was, if there was any snow left, it was pretty easy to navigate around it and not lose the trail. So we were there. Uh, we had, we had day hiked to this place called Squaw Lake. Squaw Lake is uh, north of Mount McLaughlin. Um, and just at the southwestern extreme southwestern tip of four mile lake and there's a there's a pretty good sized campground there uh at four mile lake and then there's a trailhead that goes to squaw lake and then eventually goes around four mile and intersects with pacific crest trail we had day hiked in there and no problem no no bad feelings and um this time you know we like the area so we decided hey this is an easy two and a half, three mile hike in. Uh, we can enjoy ourselves, not be in a hurry. We'll go and set up camp, um, look, watch the stars and all of that. And so we got in there and as dust came on, uh, the whole, again, the whole mood just changed in the, in the whole area. Uh, it, 
it it just seemed like it was quieter. None of the bugs that normally make noise were making noise. It was just an uneasy quiet. And so we we my wife and I started getting this feeling of danger and dread. And so I'm always armed in the woods. So I just we keep an eye out. We're vigilant, and um, you just feel like something's close to your camp. Um, and again, bears, when they, when they do camps they're they typically will come straight in to whatever they're smelling, whatever food source or whatnot. Um, and of course we put all our food, we hung it up in a tree, uh, just for bears. And we just didn't feel, it, it didn't feel like a bear had come in. It just, we were being watched and, and that was just that overwhelming feeling. And so uh, the next day we uh, decided, hey, we'll, this isn't a huge lake. We'll we'll take a, a quick hike around the lake just to you know, just for fun to check things out. And so we we started in a counterclockwise motion around this lake, and about three quarters of the way around, we come across in this tree, and it, this camp we come across the campsite, and it was quite a ways off where the main trail would be going by the lake and um it was just uh odd it it was a it looked like a hastily abandoned campsite there were there was clothing there was a a pair of uh, baited levi's i'll never forget what they looked like Um, there were socks some personal effects and there was a paper tablet and you could tell it had been there at least one winter um you know when snow melts it the needles and stuff kind of get up on things and it it just looked like it had been there for at least one winter. And we, it kind of freaked me out having the military police experience. I'm thinking, man, is this a crime scene? So we left and when we, uh, we packed out, um, when we got home where I had self-service again, uh, I reported it to the Klamath County Sheriff and I never heard anything back on that. Um, and we haven't been back to that location since. Um, and that, that's pretty much that, uh, situation there. Well, that was interesting because, you know, when you and I spoke last night, um, we have a friend of ours who, uh, him and his buddy ran into in somewhere probably in Southern Oregon, um, an abandoned campsite, but one of the one of the kind of creepy features of that one was uh, spent shell casings. I think it was uh, you know two twenty three round or shell casings all over the place. Right. So uh, you know it's like they had encountered something and were you know defending themselves. Uh, right. <clears throat> this this uh, Squaw Lake situation. Now you said that there is a mood change as it as a, as twilight came on or the evening came on. Right. Was it gradual or was it just at some point you went, "Hey, we're not hearing that anything that right we should there. be hearing." Yeah, that was it. It came on fairly quick. Uh, you knew there was just a, a change in the mood in the air. Um, and you know, again, we're not new to the woods. We're not new to the Sky Lakes wilderness region. We've been out there before without problems, out looking at the stars, 
And, and so we just, we didn't get spooked easily. Uh, we had camped and been out enough. Uh, we were acclimatized to the environment out there and, and used to how it felt. And when that suddenly changes, something inside you just tells you there's something drastically wrong going on. You're not alone. There's someone or something around. And, and yeah, it was just, it was a fairly rapid change to the area. Let me ask you this. Typically what I've experienced in the evening, it's as it starts to transition to, you know, the twilight to dusk and then on into, into evening or dark, <clears throat> Usually just before then, you get a real ruckus from all the animals, you know, the, the chipmunks and the squirrels right. and everything and the, and the birds, everything just running around, just, you know, getting their last bit of food or whatever. Right. And you've so you've experienced that before, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> OK. <laughs> and this time. You didn't get that. Nothing. Yeah, silence. It seemed like even the the bugs that buzz and make noise at night, they just went dead silent. Um, you know, up there, uh, there's actually a surprising amount of frogs at these little lakes and ponds up there. And uh, they'll even croak and make a little noise at night. And uh, that time of year... Um, we'd been up to another lake in uh, the Sky Lakes region called Island Lake. And that place was just thick with baby frogs and of course, making all kinds of ruckus. And it just, all of that silent. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. You, you got to wonder, do they know something that I don't know? <laughs> yeah. They have that deeper uh, survival instinct, you know, that they have to live out every day. So if if they feel like there's a threat around there, they're going to clam up. Yeah. And, you know, Will and I have talked about this. Crickets and frogs. I love those things. Great alarm systems because they're going all yep. night and then all of a sudden silence. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, something's around. Something's walking around. They can pick up the vibrations. Right. Uh, yeah. So, and you never heard back from uh, the Klamath County Sheriff's Department on what you never got any uh, closure or feedback on that abandoned nope. camp. Nothing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I even I gave the location and everything as best as I could, and uh, yeah, never heard anything. Got never got it, any calls with questions. Nothing. I would imagine they certainly would have sent a deputy or somebody out there to investigate. Right. And I know the deputies have been up there before because we've camped at the main campground there and we've seen them uh, in their uh, in their uh, sheriff's truck. Uh, they drive through the campground and and then then mosey on out of there. Uh, so I know they go up there. It's not like it's somewhere that they wouldn't normally go. No, that's good to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so in July of 2014, yeah, what happened there? This is uh, right around Crater Lake area. Yeah, it's uh, a spot called 
uh, Lake West or West Lake. Um, it's kind of, uh, I was looking on the map, it's kind of on the northwest tip of uh, Crater Lake National Park. It's um, on the Crater Lake side of Highway 230. Uh, I had, for some reason, wrote down 238, but it's Highway 230. And it's close to the Boundary Springs Trailhead. And that's a, a pretty remote trailhead that goes out um, to the Boundary Springs that uh, eventually feed into the creeks that become the Rogue River. And uh, and this is an area where you're not just going to get uh, just anybody going out there. You need to have a high clearance vehicle or four wheel drive. And that road, anytime we've ever been back there, that road has only gotten worse year to year. It is completely unmaintained. Um, a Jeep road essentially. And, uh, that's what we had. We had two Jeeps that we went in with. Um, so we camped for a few days there and the lake is right off and the, the camping spot, it's, it's literally right off this little road that we come in on and the road continues past us and it gets even worse until it intersects with, uh, another road on the national falls, the road that goes to the national falls trailhead. And, uh, like I said, we had, we set up camp and we stayed there a couple of days, uh, day one and night were fine. I mean, it, it was great. The, the view of the stars was fantastic. The frogs were making noise. And, um, during the day, the boys were catching tadpoles and stuff. And just, we had bought a, brought a little raft and they went out on the lake and it was just a good time night two again um that sudden change uh came across the whole area uh things went quiet and although we didn't hear any cars come in as things progressed we were thinking to ourselves man is, is this just some people just out here messing around um Across the road from us, uh, and again, this is probably 50 yards tops where we were hearing the noise, something large and heavy in the dark, uh, just going back and forth on the side of the road. Um, we, I shined the flashlight over there. I could not see anything, but there was definitely something big over there, um, just kind of going back and forth. And, uh, again, we thought maybe people were messing with us, but then we thought there's only one way in and out of here. Uh, we're, we're gonna hear a car. There's just no doubt. Uh, cause there's no other ambient noise other than nature out there. We heard heavy steps. We heard branches breaking and it was, it was fairly persistent for, uh, probably a couple of hours worth of that. And that just that feeling of dread, danger, everything, uh, it just, it, it really permeated us. And it got to the point where, uh, I have a 12 gauge defense shotgun and, uh, I racked around and made it known that I was armed and yelled at out and we continued to shine the light around. And just, again, we never saw anything. And, uh, but we stayed vigilant the rest of the night, even when we went to the tent and, um, the next morning we had breakfast and packed on out of there. How and far away now, was this? 
No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, as far as how far away was the noise? Yeah, from your camp, how far do you, would you estimate this thing was going back and forth? I would say, you know, it's hard to tell when it gets dark out there, it gets dark. So I would say 20, 30, 40 yards. Oh, definitely close. not more than that. Um, okay. But it, I, I, we would shine the light around and at that time it was, it was wooded pretty good. Um, the area has since been, uh, completely decimated by a, a forest fire. And so the vast majority of the trees are gone. You just essentially have toothpicks, charred toothpicks standing there. Uh, some areas that, uh, when we went back in there on a day drive, some of those areas were so, uh, scorched. It was like moon dust almost just everywhere. And so, yeah, if it had been that way when we were there the first time, we might have actually been able to see something. But as it was when we were there, there was enough trees uh, that there was, if something wanted to hide out of the site, uh, it could do it pretty easily. Okay, yeah, so that's um, that's pretty close. And and again, you you know, the to have a peaceful night of sleep, uh, eternal vigilance is the uh, price for that, right? Right, right. And uh, yeah, it was just um, so very disconcerting. And animals move on through, and they don't generally hang around unless they're going to come directly into your camp looking for food. Uh, they're not going to pace back and forth. Uh, moving around at different angles of your camp, um, breaking branches and things like that. That's a very good point. Exactly. And the remote and the difficulty getting in there uh, pretty much excludes people doing this. Right. Right. And there was no way someone could have got within a mile of us and not us not heard their vehicle coming in unless they came in on foot. And it, it would have been too remote for that. Right, right. So next one was August 2018. So we're getting a little closer here. Right. Uh, yeah. Cliff Lake, Devil's Peak. What happened there? Yeah. Devil's Peak is in the Sky Lakes Wilderness. It's, uh, I don't know, it's north of Mount McLaughlin. I, I don't know the exact distance. The Sky Lakes Wilderness isn't that huge. Uh, it's, 30 or 40 miles long, maybe. And uh, so we decided to go in. Uh, I had hiked in there when I was about 12 years old with uh, a friend and their family. Uh, we went on a 50 mile hike and we had done Devil's Peak. And there was, I don't recall having any uh, problems or bad feelings. It was just a good time. And uh, this time, I decided I wanted to take my family into the Devil's Peak area. And uh, so we prepared. We we decided to go in in a trailhead that we had never been to before off one of the National Forest Service roads to the west. Um, and this is, again, very rugged terrain. This trailhead, uh, it was incredibly steep. Uh, it was 
all the way up to the ridge there it, it wasn't there were no switchbacks on this trail it was like straight up for i don't know three or four miles uh, to the peak and everything was fine we started out uh, we had actually planned on staying there several days and getting settled in at cliff lake and uh, taking the trail uh, on a day hike up to the top of devil's peak and back and so we're we're headed up. We decided to stop for lunch in this meadow, and everything's fine. There was no uh, bad feeling. Everyone was in a good mood. We pack up, and we head out again, and we get to the top. And we can see down into the valley where Cliff Lake is. Um, and the trail, it it's not level for very long, and it starts uh, digging down into the ravine or the little valley that this uh, lake is in at the base of Devil's Peak. And uh, my wife and I, as we uh, headed down, uh, the trail went south and then did a pretty sharp turn to the north as it dropped in. As soon as we got to the point where it turned and we started dropping in, um, uh, there was another pond just before cliff lake and cliff lake's not that big itself but my wife and i both commented it just feels weird down here and it wasn't dark yet it was uh i would say maybe four in the afternoon and uh it didn't take us long to drop into cliff lake from there um but my wife and i both commented that man this this just feels dark in here. It's, it doesn't feel right. Um, and so we got there, uh, and we were exhausted at that point. I'm not that young guy anymore. <laughs> and, and my wife's not that young gal anymore. And so the hike was a little harder on us. We were really tired and we set up camp. It's getting dark pretty quick. We ate dinner and, uh, we were just on edge the whole night. Uh, both of us heard something walking just outside camp in all directions, uh, numerous times through the night. Um, whatever it was, it, it felt like it was big. And, uh, I got out of the tent a few times and shined the light around and yelled out, but I never saw anything. Um, and you know, in all of these areas, that type of soil, uh, the type of ground up there, it transmits vibration and sound really well. I mean, when if something big hits the ground, you're gonna you're gonna feel it and you're gonna hear that big thud. And the whole time we were there that night, my wife and I didn't sleep, so that was a a long hike out because we were still exhausted. And uh, you know, we just had that sense of let's get the hell out of here. Um, we had uh we had planned on like i said we had planned on staying there a few more days and and exploring around that area and just home basing at cliff lake and just having a good time you know easy little hikes here and there other than the one up to the peak but that morning uh my wife and i were so um i don't know how to describe it kind of unraveled um based on how we felt overnight and hearing things and we've been in the wilderness before and never had a problem. And we packed up and left uh, just as soon as we were done with breakfast. We 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 uh, 
filtered some more water for our uh, uh, water cans, and we got the heck out of there. And uh, we were hauling butt out of there it, pretty much as fast as our uh, legs could take us. It didn't seem to phase the boys. You know, they're they're young and strong, but they uh, uh, yeah, we got we got out of there in record time. And it by then. I remember distinctly when we went up the previous day, you know how fires are in the Northwest here. Um, we just get the whole, it seems like all of Oregon just gets packed in with smoke on the West of oh, the Cascades. Yeah. And we had that layer of smoke when we went up and, and the air at the ground was pretty clear. And uh, that morning the smoke had settled down. So uh, we ended up having the, uh, we had taken, masks with us and 95 masks because we anticipated maybe we were going to run into some smoke and that's exactly what happened but it boy that didn't slow us down when we hauled ass out of there uh and we haven't been back since i'm looking at the area it's pockmarked with a zillion little lakes in there oh yeah and it's you're at the bottom of a basin kind of so it's mm -hmm. like uh you know i just to use this terminology, but it seems like it would be a really good uh, kind of a kill zone for the, something to go in there if they need to, you know, they could herd deer or whatever kind of prey they want, and it, there's no escape. Right. Uh, the terrain there, yeah, it would be very easy to uh, uh, funnel something into a kill zone. I mean, that unless from a military standpoint, standpoint unless you have the high ground or very familiar with the area uh you're at a disadvantage yeah absolutely or to yeah, anything that's... that wants to be aggressive and I'm, I'm looking at the contour lines some of those are pretty close together so my gosh yeah, yeah. that's some uh, hefty hiking where it fits i mean it's like a straight up cliff before it starts to round out yeah. a little uh, near the peak of Devil's Peak. Yeah, Devil's Peak is just gnarly. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's yeah. sloping. I hiked it when I was steep. a kid, and it it was rough. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and I didn't want to let you go before we talk about the cow okay. and the. Tell us about that. The cow, where was it? What okay, was so what was unique? This was up at our hunt it's our hunting grounds. I like to call it our hunting grounds. Um this was up at the hunting grounds, uh on the edge of a place called Buck Meadows. Uh, again, a place we've been many times before. Um they used to even have a horse race there every uh Labor Day weekend. So we'd have to contend with a lot of horses going through and um I don't recall there being one up there that year and I had one up there and it's open range. So, you know, some years the cows are there, sometimes they're not. These cows are not afraid of people. It's not like they keep their distance. You could just about walk up to any of them. And I didn't see a bunch of cows there that year, but what I did find, I decided to go kind of cross country across this meadow, buck meadow. Um, to a stand of pretty large trees. Uh, it was actually two stands over uh, on the far northwest side of this meadow. And I came across 
the remains of a cow. It had been there for some time and I hadn't hiked specifically on this exact spot. I'd been in the area, but I hadn't hiked specifically to that spot before. And, um, the cow the it was skeletonized with some of the skin left and I've seen a lot of carcasses up in the woods and most of the time they're scattered uh, from various predators or scavengers, black bears, especially they'll scavenge the heck out of something uh, and drag pieces off all over the place. Um, it was fairly intact uh, as far as the skeletal remains, but the, the curious part, and I, it, I didn't think much of it at the time, um, but the, the front of the skull, cows have kind of a flat forehead between their eyes, and it was crushed in, uh, not quite between the eyes, just a, a few inches down, and it had just been, you know, essentially, yeah, crushed inward. That's that's the only way I can put it, and I've never seen a carcass with a crushed skull. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you don't think it tripped and fell? I'm being facetious here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact on that the edge of a meadow, so there were no rocks. It was all grassy area, uh, tall grass. And uh, yeah, there was certainly nothing within 50 yards of this thing that could have explained the skull being smashed in as one of the injuries or causes of death. I just, yeah. And the fact that it was not scavenged. I mean, everything gets scavenged quickly. Right. Right. And you said this looks and like it had been the there for a while. Still there. Yeah. Yeah, and the, uh, every, everything was like where it lays. And I know for a fact I've seen tons of bears up in that area, and you're going to get foxes and everything else that are going to scavenge those remains, birds, and you know, you name it. And it, the skeleton was mostly intact, and it had been there a while, and so that was uh, highly unusual. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I've only heard of one other instance like that. So that's uh, kind of the same situation. Only that was a bear. Yeah. Um, well, listen, this is, uh, I got to tell you, this is some great information for, and you did actually see something. You couldn't definitively make it out, but yeah. I didn't realize you had, you know, some sort of a visual on, on something. Right. And it was only that one time that uh, up at that uh, open meadow at the top of the mountain there. Right. Well, what's going through my mind when you're describing that is you saw that one. Did you see the other four that were maybe circling around and kind of closing in on you? <laughs> right. No. And, uh, you know, the odd thing is it was moving fairly slowly from tree to tree. It caught my attention. And who knows, maybe it was purposely so, it, you know, maybe it was trying to get me to look that direction. I don't know. Um, I did vacate the area, but like I said, it felt like it was shadowing me. Yeah, well, that's, um, Will, you've talked about that, where they, they'll make a, 
intentional display to catch your attention and right. primates do this and and leaving the area right away was the best thing to do yeah yeah i didn't make a big ruckus i put my pack on uh, picked up my bow and uh it took a direct line to the main trail and uh at that point when you feel that uncomfortable the hunt's over so you're not worried about spooking anything you're just getting the hell out of there and that's that's what I did. It was downhill all the way from there, and I was booking it. What does your wife think about all this? She uh, she's about where I am at. Um, we've I've had the interest since I was I I think I picked out my first Bigfoot book. I I seen it in the library. I think in elementary school or junior high. And I've had an interest, but that kind of fell off as life happened, being in the military and and stuff. But uh, as we've experienced these things and and listened to people's stories, uh, there's so many uh, people that are highly credible. Uh, people who, you know, when those people share and they're a doctor and their reputation's at stake, that tells you something. Or you have hunters that don't want to say anything for fear of reprisal or, or being stigmatized. But she is, um, it's a long answer, but she essentially, she's like me. Uh, even though we don't really want these creatures to be real, uh, we've conceded there's enough credible evidence that they are. Oh, I and would have to agree, that, yeah. That's the disconcerting thing. And my oldest son, he's of the same thing. My youngest son, he's he's more of the skeptic. He wants tangible proof of just about everything. But my oldest son, he's and again, he's about where we're at. Uh, there's just too much um, credible things that have, have come up. And of course, the stigma, people laugh, people think you're foolish. And that's why I've kept it between my wife and I or my family and I all these years. Uh, and it kind of, I was a little bit hesitant to come on the show, you know, cause I hear these podcast stories and these terrifying encounters. And I felt like mine was a bit underwhelming, but, uh, Tom, you put me at ease on that, uh, the way you explain things to me and it kind of feels good to get it off my chest, you know, holding it in all these years. You know, these are very good. Um, and I'm, this is very good information for a lot of people because, it isn't the scary encounter always. It's these other ones, the very near ones that, right. that a lot of people have and need to and be aware you know, of. Right. You listen to those signs and you listen to your instinct to vacate the area. Don't hang around. I mean, I think we got lucky. I'm thankful that my family and I, that there was no direct confrontation, even though it may have led to that had we stayed in the area longer than we did. Yeah, the behavior ramps up. I think up. we got lucky. I, yeah, I, I just did the more I think about it and the more it kind of disconcerts me, you know, if the, if these things are as big as we know, they probably are, um, I might get a lucky shot with my rifle cause I don't go into the woods unarmed. Um, I've had experiences with people out in the woods, uh, that, uh, just, you know, that was the biggest reason for carrying a, a gun was more than two-legged humans um but now with this i definitely will not go into the woods unarmed um 
and some of those bow hunting years, it's before you know Oregon banned people from carrying firearms uh, if they were bow hunting, which is you know silly because if someone's going to poach, they're going to do it no matter what. But anyhow, uh, I don't want to get off track. Um, I'm just happy that there was no direct confrontation. Uh, I listened to these stories, and um, it's these things are dangerous. I, I feel that in my heart and soul, and people need to be cautious. If they're hearing signs or the mood of their area changes, they need to listen to those signs. They need to take heed and um, depart the area if they can. Yeah, break, yeah, that, at the least be very vigilant of their surroundings. And the uh, gut in the gut instinct is is very important. And I'm glad you yeah. listened to it. And the uh, the forest ranger that we ran into a few months back, she listened to it. It uh, it serves you well. Just listen. It's very leave. important. It's yeah. Don't because you know again the way our minds are wired. Uh, oftentimes we'll try and rationalize and put it off as our own. Uh, imagination or you know we're making more of something than it is now when we're out in those situations in those areas um, any number of bad things can happen and you need to listen to what your senses are telling you absolutely correct don't allow yourself to be uh, to rationalize yourself out of it and put yourself in an even worse situation absolutely Listen, um, I think we're going to have you back on the show, and I really appreciate you taking the time, and it sounds like it was uh, almost a little bit of a uh, catharsis. <laughs> it is for a lot of people. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, much appreciated, Bob. Yes. I'm glad to be here, and I, I feel good now about having done it. Uh, I feel a lot better to get that off my chest, so thank you for that opportunity. And uh, if you guys are ever in the Southern Oregon area, I'd love to meet and maybe go out to these places that can still be accessed, uh, at least without a massive multi-day hike, you know? Absolutely. We're going to be in that neck of the woods this summer, in fact. Oh, cool. We're going to look you up, so you're going to be sorry you had the invite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, Will, I I know you're an author. I haven't seen any of your books. what would be the best way to get a hold of some of those books? Oh, Does Amazon carry them? Amazon. So, yeah, Amazon which, carries all of them. Okay. And which one, being interested in the subject, which one would you suggest to start with? Oh, boy. Um, you know, either either Bigfoot Evidence or um okay that that's probably the one i you know if you're from what you've talked about that would be the one you'd probably want to start with okay well the one-on-one field guide was pretty cool yeah okay well i'll uh i'll have to give those a try and uh and then again thanks for the opportunity to be on here and uh tell my story and maybe help people not get themselves into bad situations or at least be able to remove them before they go tragic. And that's what we're interested in is, you know, for people to hear this from, from folks like you so that they'll pay attention to what's going on out there. And and if they've experienced it themselves, they know that they're not alone. Well, and yeah, and then my original email, uh, I, I like you guys' 
approach to the subject. It's level-headed. It's common sense. Um, you know, TV and even some other podcasts, there's a lot of rabbit holes in this subject matter that you could go down and end up, you know, meeting Cheshire Cat, so to speak. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, end up in Wonderland and way off on a tangent. So <laughs> I really appreciate the way you guys uh, approach this subject and uh, don't get drawn into some of the nonsense that's out there. Oh, we appreciate that. And it's the only way to do it. Yeah. We're just about out of time, folks. So, Bob, thank okay. you again and, and keep in touch. And of course, we will see you uh, in a few months' time. All right. I look forward to it. All right, everyone. Stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, Laird Meadow, west of Bluff Creek, summer 1964. Tracks reportedly seen by the Blake and Trigonig logging operation. Dave Blake told Renee and me diesel barrels weighing 450 pounds were moved around. A four-foot culvert, which it took several men to lift, was thrown into a canyon. We are back, and uh, Tom, we were going to mention um, when we talked about with the midweek show, instead of doing the commentary, we were going to hold it off until this show. So we do have some comments from the show. Uh, so I guess we'll start with that, then we'll go into questions and things. So um, one person said, Sam45 says, love to hear more reading from this book, Great Encounter Stories. We are going to continue with... Uh, readings from Ivan Sanderson's book so you'll have that to look forward to uh, let's see question for the Q&A this is from uh, Rob he says uh, what is the possibility these things follow more along the gibbon branch of our tree the reason I ask I spend a lot of time watching animals and I tend to key into movement I've noticed that while watching gibbons at the zoo how they walk uh, if one were to picture a gibbon with short or shorter arms while watching them move on the ground it is enough to raise the hair in the back of my neck the body between these two is close they most off mostly move bipedal on the ground your thoughts well first what do you think okay uh well gibbons have a strange way of moving uh they are actually quite good bipedally but the one thing that you notice about them uh their arms are enormously um out of proportion with their legs and that's due to the fact that they are truly uh, arboreal animals they they actually uh, practice true brachiation in the trees and they run with their hands and their arms up in the air balancing themselves that way but uh, the problem being is that get, uh, gibbons like chimpanzees and like gorillas have a different way of walking <clears throat> than we do when we walk um um and they all they all do stagger step like we do um and um and i hope everybody understands what i mean when i say stagger step that uh, uh we don't walk straight in line like uh, bigfoot do uh in other words our footprints do not follow directly in a straight line but they um walk opposite of each other um kind of like a herringbone yeah yeah and um uh, uh, apes do the same thing 
However, when they walk, <clears throat> they their hip, their pelvic region, and their uh, rib cage, they move in exactly the same direction, which when you watch them walk, they do have a slightly awkward way of, they, their stance is wide, and they have an awkward way of walking bipedally. They can do it, but it looks awkward. Um, when we walk, our pelvic, uh, our pelvic bones and our rib cage actually walk op, uh, move opposite of each other, which provides us a, sm uh, a much more smoother method of walking. Um, we, we could also get into the fact that uh, um, we have a gluteus maximus and a large one, and if you've ever looked at apes, they have no butt. Mm -hmm. uh, it just drops off. And the way our uh, gluteus maximus is attached to our pelvic bone is the reason that we have a more um, upward stance in walking and you have less forward leaning. And you'll notice that in your apes and your monkeys that when they do periodically walk bipedally, they lean forward. And um, most of your monkeys do not have arm swings like we do. And... Um, your gorillas and chimps, they do swing their arms, but not as much as a human. And then we know, and what we have been told by the way, and when you can see it in the Patterson film, um, Patty has a nice big gluteus maximus, and she also has a very large arm swing. And that actually helps in uh, regulating our bipedalism and obviously does the same for them. All right. We didn't really get a lot of questions on the on the uh, midweek show. It was most everybody enjoyed it, Tom. Um, did you have, want to make any comments about that chapter, or should we just move on? No, I think we're ready to move. Okay, so we will have the fifth chapter on the midweek show this coming week. So, you know, for those who listen to the midweek show, stay tuned for that. Uh, what do we have for questions for today's uh, Q&A? Okay. Yeah, still having a few little technical issues. Tom, do we have any questions? Yeah, we do. And actually, this one, um, this one's for Forrest. Forrest, this is the one you and I talked about. I actually called you up and asked you this, and I thought it'd be a really good one for the show, and that is talking about the, the ratio or the percentage of Neanderthal DNA, uh, the people that do have that, going back in time, uh, as a natural assumption that the further back in time you go, you're going to get a higher ratio of Neanderthal DNA. So you may have, as you said, you have somebody that's half and half. So can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, and you kind of broke up during your, uh, your asking the question, but I know where, uh, because we actually had talked about this. Um, <clears throat> uh, Presently, in the human population, we have anywhere from a 1% to 7% uh, DNA percentage in the human population today of uh, homo neanderthalensis. Of course, you go back 300,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, <clears throat> you got a Neanderthal that crosses with uh, a homo sapien, you're going to get a 50-50 cross. Well, because, you know, you get 50% from the, the, the male, you get 50% from the female. Um, 
anytime, let me let me say something in here too, and it really has nothing to do with uh, the Neanderthal. But uh, anytime you have uh, a mother and father mate, and you produce offspring, there will be anywhere from fifty to a hundred um, mutations that occur along that DNA line. Uh, m- the majority of the time, you know, ninety-nine and nine-tenths percent of the time, those mutations have absolutely no effect on uh, the the viability or the offspring at all. Uh, sometimes they do. Now, what happens then with uh, you've got this viable, obviously the offspring from the two was a viable product because they went on, or we wouldn't have the DNA in our uh, genetic uh, makeup now. So the offspring were obviously vi- viable. Uh, so they went on to breed. Now, who's to say, who knows whether that particular offspring then crossed with a homo sapien so that's therefore going to dilute it down to 25 percent but then that child may go back and and cross with a neanderthal so that's going to then raise the uh the percentages back up on the and it goes on this way on down the line and of course the more that they actually cross into the homo sapien line the more you're actually diluting the percentage of neanderthal and I think this is probably what has occurred over the eons of time. And um, you go back uh, 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, you're going to have <clears throat> offspring that are definitely going to have more percentages and higher percentages of Neanderthal than uh, you are going today. Now, there are populations in the uh, world today, and surprisingly enough, it is uh, mostly East Asians and um, on down the into Indonesia, Melanesia, and Australia. They actually have higher, up to six and seven percent of Neanderthal. But you know what you have to consider is what mutations did a, the Neanderthals apply to the human population that we you know acquired. You get the northern uh, freckles, red hair, blonde hair, uh, and lighter skin, and blue and green eyes actually came from Neanderthals. You see that all over northern Europe and in, in the European po- uh, populations. The In Tibetans, they actually acquired from Neanderthals the ability to uh, have high ad- altitude adaptation. So... Sometimes what one people acquire and benefit from not necessarily will be the same thing that another people will acquire from them. And they actually do, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll see these pictures of Australian Aborigines that have blonde hair. That naturally occurs in those populations and in uh, Melanesia as well. In those populations, they have children that come up with blonde hair and blue eyes and it has nothing to do with uh the european settlers coming in because they had these uh they had these mutations in their populations long before the uh white europeans uh came into these areas and colonized them did i answer that question or did i just <laughs> ramble on <laughs> yeah no 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 that, no 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 there was a uh a very thorough answer, and that's that's what we we really appreciate. Because uh, I was thinking about the Aboriginals, and I, I, I've seen them with the blue eyes and the blonde hair, 
And my assumption was it was just that he had interbred with the Europeans, but you cleared that up. It's actually well, and and let me like and let me say something. Or? Uh, yeah, I would uh, I would think that it would be a recessive gene in their populations because brown hair and black hair is actually a dominant gene. Um, but uh, it just depends on what percentage, um, you know, you have in your uh, bloodline that it's going to show up. But now you do have to consider the fact that uh, nowadays uh, with the, the fact that we've had white people, non-aboriginal people, in these countries, yes, there are some children that are the product of, you know, interracial marriages, and of course they're going to uh, exhibit features from both parents. But like I said, this did occur naturally in these people before uh, the Europeans ever showed up. You know, and I got to say, Forrest, I, I jokingly told you that you know I wanted I wanted to be one of the guys with the higher percentage. Because I like dragging my knuckles, and you admonished <laughs> me. <laughs> I said, I, I think I told you that it would probably be me that had the more, uh, <laughs> because I have freckles. Uh, I also have uh, auburn hair, and I have blue eyes. So, um, you know, and you, what can and you say? don't drag your knuckles. <laughs> and I, I promise I don't drag my knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when people, they always try to insult you by saying, are you so Neanderthal? You know, I they could call me that, and I would not find that to be an insult at all, because, you know, I always go back and say, and I know this is a redundant answer here, that Neanderthals have been around a lot longer than Homo sapiens sapiens, so, uh, you know, get over yourselves, people, you know, because uh, Neanderthals, are weren't, they weren't stupid people. They actually had a larger brain cavity than a uh, brain than we uh, have, so, you know, it's like, uh, it, it goes back to the old thing. If you don't, you may have the concept of the will, but if you don't need it, why are you going to, you know, use it? So, um, you know, I risk my case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, right. So if you don't need the wheel, why, why have it? That's right. <laughs> Kids before they're 15, they know about that. So, well, they have bikes, So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Next question. Yeah, next question. Um, so we got a just kind of a comment here from Mike. He says he was he appreciates us answering his uh, question about the about um, Osman last week. Um, what about Will? Without military experience, uh, would Will have continued his research into the subject and would be as knowledgeable as he is today? Yeah, I mean, you know, in actuality, my my military time really didn't have anything to do with um, my research because I continued that separately. I guess. Well, I, now you did have that one encounter at Fort Lewis. Yeah, I mean, but I, I think really what that would have contributed would have been, um, you know, more along the lines of map reading skills. You know, because I really, I really picked that up in the military. That was my job. So, I mean, not that I couldn't read a map otherwise, but it, it was, you know, it was a big help. Well, and I think you're a little bit like me in that sense, in that navigation was a subject not only that you had to learn, but really enjoyed it. It's pretty cool stuff. It was interesting, sure. 
But, you know, a lot of what I was doing prior to that time was, you know, we were just getting started going out looking and, and kind of getting our feet wet in the subject as teenagers. And then I, I did a little bit as time allowed, and I didn't have a lot of time in the military. But afterwards, of course, then I picked it up again, and um, it didn't really have a lot of effect. You know, my service time didn't have a lot of effect on on that part of it. Okay. And... Here's another question. This is from Bill, and he wants to know, how many years did you spend in Washington uh, learning how to track these, how to learn how to track Bigfoot, and how successful were you? Well, I was born and raised in Washington, so uh, I lived there a total of 50 years, so uh, quite a bit of time. And uh, it wasn't really until... After I got out of the service and I moved to Vancouver and started working that area south of Mount St. Helens that I really kind of honed my skills on the subject and um, was able to, you know, plot the movings of that one individual group, you know, for a dozen years there. And how successful were you? Would you, if you had to rate yourself, because uh, my understanding was you're you're very successful. You could forecast within 30 days usually I, I was I was able to tell where they were going to be yeah within a 30-day time frame because um, now they typically move every couple of weeks but um, you know so what I would do is I, I would find out where they were in one spot and then knowing um, well actually before that what well I'd find them in one place and then you kind of do a larger search pattern and then listening to people's reports and things they kind of start picking up a direction where they were going so after you know two or three of these moves then I'd say to myself okay let me look this way and see if they're going to be over here and I'd start watching that area during the next month and then eventually I'd find some evidence that they were there and I just kept doing that and and sometimes I'd lose the trail but then I would you know pick up witness reports and uh, I mean it took it took a couple of years to really pick up the pattern but once I picked it up then it was pretty accurate Okay, and I have a question for, and this is actually a question I should say for uh, Forrest. Is it kind of arid, or do you guys, is there a fair amount of like little creeks and streams and stuff? Well, um, I have a, uh, what I call a wet weather creek that runs right directly through the middle of my property. Uh, when it is <clears throat> wet, uh, it, it runs. And then I have a tank off to the uh, west of my property. And that thing, um, <clears throat> if it fills up, it'll stay full the whole summer. Um, but um, right now we're in the middle of a drought and we're on a burn ban. So um, it's not looking real good for us. And I don't like to hear that because my hay production <laughs> for all my horses is not uh, not good. So that just means... Not only do we have higher gas prices, now we're going to have uh, higher everything else price. You know, all the feed prices and hay and everything's going up because we we're in a drought situation. Right, right. And now, do you guys have to use alfalfa? I, I feed alfalfa for my born horses, and then all the horses that are in the pasture, uh, they get. Uh, uh, I bring in have uh, brown round bales brought in for those, and they feed on those constantly. And it's a, it is a Bermuda grass, uh, sometimes blue stem. In the winter, we have to feed blue stem mixed with uh, uh, Bermuda grass. But uh, 
during the summer, it's strictly um, Bermuda grass hay. Okay. Yeah, I know uh, a lot of places, uh, horses don't get enough nutrients, supplements out of just, you know, out in the pasture. And so you have to buy alfalfa for them. Yeah, well, I I, I do supplement the the horses in the barn with alfalfa hay, but I couldn't afford to feed all of these guys. Uh, I have uh, close to 32 head and I I couldn't feed them all um, alfalfa. We don't raise alfalfa here, so it has to be imported. And all of my alfalfa is three-string alfalfa that comes out of California. So, um, and it's all irrigated out there. Um, We just, we don't live in a... uh, area that's conducive to alfalfa growth so um it it all comes from california but all the the grass hay comes locally and bermuda grass actually will rate right up there with uh alfalfa and um you know nutrients so it's it's a very good hay but we i still have to feed them they're they're all grained as well so uh you don't even want to know what my feed bill a month is that's why i'm still working and working and working (laughs) <laughs> yeah 32 head of cattle no horses 32 horses yeah that's a lot of horses okay yeah um wow okay would you like one <laughs> well, i would love to have one yes <laughs> uh yeah well we have a lot of critters here might as well make room for one more Okay, um, so here's a question, and that is, you know, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to jump back a little bit to the comment and the question about Gibbons and the similarities between Bigfoot and Gibbons. Do you think that there could be, going back far enough, do you think there could be like a shared ancestor, or do you think it might be more... um, just sort of coincidence that they have some similarities. Like Bigfoot is a 1,800-pound gibbon. I kind of think the similarity ends there. Um, I don't think that the gibbons would be uh, an ancestor, would figure into the ancestry of uh, Bigfoot. But, you know, (laughs) my goodness, I could be wrong. Who knows? you have you do have the um, people that say that uh, they have arms that uh, are are longer than their their legs, which would indicate uh, some arboreal lifestyle. Uh, but then you hear them people talk about their quadrupedal and that they can run. But I mean, you can look at a chimpanzee. Uh, chimpanzees are extremely fast when they're running quadrupedally. Um, I don't know where their ancestry comes from. And, um, I mean, we have a hard enough time figuring out what the human ancestry is. And to be able to uh, figure out exactly where uh, Bigfoot's ancestry, when we don't even have anybody accepting the fact that Bigfoot exists, to say that we know their uh, uh, evolutionary pattern would be uh, virtually impossible, to, uh, I think, to discern. But, um, I mean, we've got, we've got, uh, oh, what is it, uh, Oreopithecus that existed, uh, uh, gosh, 
I'm wrecking my brain. It was probably nine to seven million years ago. Uh, Oreopithecus was an, a was a European ape that was bipedal. So, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that that is an ancestor to, um, you know, Bigfoot, but I don't think I used to be one of those that thought that Gigantopithecus until I really started looking into uh, what the, the scientists and anthropologists were saying about uh, Gigantopithecus, and I'm no longer, I don't think I'm in the, the, the field that thinks that uh, Bigfoot descended from Giganto. Um, so I think they're more in lines of the orangutan than they are anything. But, uh, you know, something like the Oreopithecus could be a good candidate. I mean, but even then, then they were only like uh, four feet tall, so... Uh, you know, maybe a hundred pound animal at the most. Uh, so, you know, but who's to say how animals develop? You know, we've seen how evolution goes. So, I mean, our ancestors are supposedly only three or four feet tall too, and look where we're at. So, you know, it's interesting. That's a good point. It, you know, it's interesting in the early days of this subject, people like John Napier was an anthropologist from the UK, and uh, a few others, Sanderson, some of them. They were making the comparison with uh, Gibbons back then, not necessarily that they oh, were, were they? related, but they were making comparisons, the similarities. Well, that's interesting. You talk about the humans being uh, some of the early early ones being short. And my question is, is there a growth hormone? I've, I've heard that there's a growth hormone. All animals have it. Lions have it. We have it. Uh, primates have it. That inhibits growth. And I'm and it's interesting because, you know, we get, uh, I think we've had reports up to 10 and a half feet, maybe a little bit taller. Actually, I think we've up in Alaska up to 14 feet for these things. So I'm just wondering if they just lack the growth hormone and they over time they get bigger or, I don't know, this is conjecture, but I just wonder if you had any thoughts or comments on that. Well, you know, I don't know. I know that, you know, like when you breed a, a lion to a tiger, um, <clears throat> and I don't remember how, how you have to cross them. It has to do with the, the growth hormone is carried on. I, I honestly don't remember, but it's on one of, the, one of the sexes, whether it be male or female, carries the inhibitor for the growth, and the other one carries the, um, uh, the growth hormone itself. And depending on whether, and I, I probably should look this up, but uh, uh, depending on whether you breed a male, male tiger to a female lion or vice versa, uh, what ends up happening in the hybrid, the liger, it, um, it doesn't have that uh, inhibitor, inhibitor for the growth. So they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't know if maybe something like that could have occurred in uh, Bigfoot. I mean, it could be. I guess until we have one on the slab I, <laughs> and I guess, somebody actually does an official DNA. I guess it too. It could be more like, and I'll use humans as an example. You know, I, I remember years ago. You know, you'd see ads and all these things about um, th that women would prefer taller men. And, and I think even taller men today have an advantage over shorter ones in society. So it might be something like that. I mean, you know, when choosing a mate, you're going to go for the bigger, stronger one to carry on better genes. 
Well, exactly, and it's it's like in lions. They say that uh, female lions actually prefer the darker maned males over the lighter maned males. So, I mean, uh, let's face it. I mean, everything has preferences. Right. right. So, uh, you know, and I, I think you may be you might actually be very correct in that. So you know? maybe. Oh, I like the bigger guy. Yeah. So maybe over <laughs> time, take me better. Maybe over time, that's what's happened. I mean, even today, I think even. Even in our generation, I think people have gotten a little bit taller than what the average was prior to our generation. And it's probably because of that that selection. Here's a question, um, and actually this will be maybe towards Forrest, but also definitely will. This has to do with the teeth on the different types, the type 1s and the type 2s. Type 1s are more the blocky Lincoln Log teeth. Mm-hmm. Type 2s are blocky Lincoln Log with, with canines mm-hmm. yeah and what would be the um why would there be why would one have them and one does not probably because you got two slightly different species that's my guess anyway that would be my guess as well and that's what again the early anthropologists in this back in the 60s they felt that there were two different kinds and it was based on that was based on footprint morphology right so i guess the question i have is um, was there some sort of evolutionary trigger that favored canines for one, one variation, whereas the other one didn't? Well, what if you're starting out, again, with that parallel evolution of a number of different hominids, you know, let's say 10 million years ago, and today we're left with two. So let's say out of seven or eight. One just happened, they're very similar, but one just happens to have some different attributes than the other one. Ah, okay, sure, sure. Okay, um, and other than that, I my understanding is the type ones and the type twos are very similar. Very, yeah, they're pretty pretty similar. Okay, um, but then unless you have two of them in a room together, you know, it's a it's a guess for the most part. Well, that's a good point because you're really just taking. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, witness witness accounts witness information yeah exactly you know, so until you got some really good stuff with both of them some good you know um comparison stuff in other words you got really super good photographs of each or you've got the specimens and you can compare them i suspect there's going to be good. more differences than we know yeah that's a really good point because uh, i don't think there's a lot of people out there that have seen the two different types and would and even if they had would be able to know that they'd seen a type one or a type two they're just probably like oh my gosh it's a bigfoot that's all they know and right exactly that's you know, that and you you said that uh uh that really they had determined that they thought that there was like four different types well that's what and who's to say that there might even be more well i was told that there were there were four main groupings Two, ma- two major species groupings and then two subcategories in each one of those. But out of all of those, mm-hmm. there, are f- there are 22 variations. Well, that's, that's a ex- uh, distinct possibility. Sure. And you know, you don't have breeding populations mixing all over. So, you know, each group is going to, they're going to tend to, you know, develop slightly different traits than groups outside of their breeding population. Well, and there's the... Uh, the encounter, I don't remember, uh, oh gosh, Tammy and James, mm-hmm. who saw the, there was an actual 
two different. They saw two uh, two kinds, two types of them. Two kinds, yes. And they and then when they realized that, they took off in different directions. They had a look of disgust well, the one, on their face. Yeah, the one that it was probably a type two, because it, it resembled the Patterson Sasquatch. It was big, stocky. Uh, they didn't see the teeth, so but I'm pretty sure in that part of the country in Alabama it's probably a type two. Uh, and they saw or it saw the other three individuals that were of a different type. And uh, when when the, those approaching group figured out there was another one, excuse me, another one there, they turned around and beat feet. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> but the and the first one had a look of disgust. They said on his face. So apparently the different kinds don't like each other. That would have been an absolute priceless video if they could have done that. I mean, it could be it could be territorial as much as anything. Well, no, that's a good point. Um, the stuff that we ran into, you know, last fall might have been territorial uh, dispute with, I mean, it was, as you said, it was extremely violent. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to, I'm still thinking about that. I haven't seen that before, so it'll take it a while to kind of sink in and kind of, I think I need some different perspective on it. But yes, yeah. it did look very violent. Yeah, and uh, it, it was very recent. Okay, um, the other question is, are there, somebody wants to know, when the eyes of Bigfoot, what do their eyes look like? And do any of them have whites of their eyes like people, or are they going to be more of a uh, chimp? gorilla type eye you know the brown you know no whites of the eyes um i'm assuming that that's for me well that is for you yes okay okay i got it (laughs) um first off the white in your eye is called the sclera and believe it or not every mammal has sclera um some do not show some do like ours show um but if you take a chimp size or a gorilla's eyes and if they turn them just right you will actually see the sclera and their eyes uh, so if we think of bigfoot as a primate he should have sclera as well um, <clears throat> everybody always says that they have very very dark eyes um, your gorillas and your chimpanzees do have very dark eyes sometimes the chimpanzees have um, a a slightly lighter brown in eye, their eye color, and it um, almost has um, a reddish chestnut color to them, which I kind of thought sometimes when people say that they, they looked at them and they had red eyes, uh, of course, maybe most of this is at night, um, uh, but they a chimpanzee's eyes sometimes when you look at them almost appear to be a, a reddish color because it's almost a chestnut brown. Uh, but they have varying degrees of uh, brown eye color within. It's not all, they're not all just across the board, brown, brown. Um, I've always seen gorillas with really, really dark, dark brown eyes, almost appearing black. And, but everything has sclera. It's just, uh, you know, some show them and some show it and some don't. And that brings up an interesting point. When you talk about, I have a couple of questions, uh, sort of spinoffs from that. One is, the fact that it 
it has you know less sclera. We have a very large area of sclera. They apparently it's going to be on the fringes, the very outer edges of their eyes. Does what purpose does that serve? Does that give them more uh, you know rones, uh, rones, cones and rods <laughs> uh, for greater vision or any any thoughts on that? Huh. Well, you know what? I have never given any thought to that. Um, maybe that's something that I need to do an inquiry on because I'll be honest with you, I've never, um, you know, thought much about that. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll throw another one at you and see what what your thought is. Um, talking about the chimps that have kind of a chestnut red eye, and that's interesting when you talk about that because we do hear a lot about people that have seen the eyes, the glowing eyes of, or, and really it's just the eye shine of Bigfoot. Some of them say it, it was kind of this amber color, like a, like a flame, and others say, well, it was red. Uh, are they going to get eye shine from, um, or are the chimps going to have a reddish eye shine? I guess that's a simple question. Well, actually, um, Primates, with the exception of your lorises and uh, torsers and the, the lower persimium groups, which is the lowest order of uh, primates, they have uh, tapetus lucidum in their eyes, which is what gives you uh, eye shine at night. We gave that up so that we could have, uh, we could see in color um, a long time ago. Uh, my personal opinion, and this is, you know, what I think about opinions, um, is that I think that the eye shine, you know, the zinc, the zinc in the eyes actually has something to do with the, the, the color, how the, the reflection of color uh, occurs when you hit, hit eyes with, uh, with light. But I've been out here, and when I go out to check my horses and stuff, and I sweep my spotlight around, I have at points in time, some of my... Uh, horses even my cats they'll show up a real white eye in the light and then sometimes if i'm using another spotlight they'll show up a kind of a green color and i think maybe just maybe it might have something to do with the type of spotlight you're hitting them with as well it is so it is we did some research on that a while back and found that different light sources will cause a different color reflection well maybe my opinion was right <laughs> Well, that's actually a good point that the uh, the different light sources, and that would kind of make sense because even with deer, well, you know this, you're driving down the road, and depending upon whether it's moon, you know, moonlight, I don't want to say moonshine, but uh, I don't think deer get into that. Um, but yeah, depending on the light source, I've seen the color of the the eye shine from deer, uh, some variation in that. Well, so that's that's an interesting. We've point. had people who, who, on occasion, have said they've you know shined lights, and and saw a, a reddish color from Sasquatch eyes. I've always used the same spotlight. I've seen eye shine a number of times, uh, a couple times fairly close, and it was always an amber color. So I think it was my light source. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Okay, uh, Sherry has a question, and this will be for Forrest, but Will also, uh, yourself as well. The um, 
why do some Sasquatch have different color of hair? I think we've had this question in the past, but this is good. Um, why is it that there's some some Sasquatch predominantly red and others are black? Hmm. You know, actually, that is a good question. Uh, obviously, there's some mutation that occurred in them that allows them for different uh, hair colors. Um, you don't see that in other um, primates. Uh, there's pretty much a continuance of uh, uh, color in your primate groupings. Uh, now, you can take just this is a for instance, um, your northern pigtail macaques are a golden color. They also have a, a short tail and it stands, you know, it, it looks like about the length of a pig's tail. So that's where they get their name. Uh, then you have your long tail macaques. Uh, these two particular species of macaque can interbreed. Um, and what ends up happening, you'll get different lengths of tail, but as well, you also get different types of coloration. And not only with the coloration, uh, the, the northern pigtail have a, 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 a nice, pretty golden color. Your long tails are kind of a mousy color. And, uh, of course, there's a difference in the way the hair <clears throat> is around their faces. And you will have offspring, these hybrid monkeys that come out with a combination of the two. Uh, and then sometimes they'll one uh, this hybrid whether they uh, had a long-tail mother or, or long-tail father and uh, a pigtail mother or father, the baby will come out looking just identical to one of the other parents, but then sometimes you'll have them that will uh, have a combination of the colors. Your long-tail macaques are kind of a mousy color. And um, so sometimes you have a combination of the two different colors and uh, uh, you've cr actually created a whole new coloration on the, the monkey. And um, it's I, I, who's to say that's exactly how the, the Bigfoot may have come about uh, with their color patterns. I don't know. I mean, it goes back to the same old thing. You know, we don't have one to examine the DNA and um, and how that would that coloration would run in their genes. Black would be the dominant color, just like, uh, you know, it is in any species, I would think. Yeah, we, we get a lot of questions that we can't answer just because of the fact we don't have a specimen to study. So it's one of those things we have to wait and see. Yeah, I don't, have, you, I don't have one in my basement. <laughs> right? I'm disappointed. But we do appreciate the question, so. You know, I, I would say, regardless, ask away. And, you know, if we have the answers, we'll answer them. If we don't know, we'll, we'll tell you we don't know and uh, go from there. So... Um, all right, so here's a question. This is one that this is just my own personal question, but I've heard this from other people, and that is, what is the difference between hair and fur? Because time and again, we hear that uh, Bigfoot is hairy. People say, no, it had hair. And then fur, I think of like a horse or a dog or a cat or something like that. Is, is fur just simply... Uh, you know, a higher concentration of hair? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the morphology, and, and I'm not a, I'm not a uh, by any means an expert on um, the difference in hair and fur, but uh, there are people out there that actually are. And um, 
the morphology and the structure of hair is actually different from uh, what fur is. In other words, they can take a hair off of a cat or a dog and tell the, uh, put it under a microscope, and you can you can tell the distinct difference between that and a human hair. Um, I will plead ignorance. I don't know the difference, so that was nothing. Uh, that was never anything that I I don't even remember it discussed in class. <laughs> you know, we we had that question come up once before, so I did some reading on it, and you know, like with with the term hominin, you know, these, these descriptions are changing. It used to be that, oh, yeah. you know, there was hair and then there was fur and fur was kind of distinguished by guard hairs with a thicker undercoat. And I think now it's all one, one category. It's, it's just different. Uh, but you can even look at human species. You can tell, uh, to a large extent, what racial group a human belongs to by their hair, because, I remember one of my anthropology classes many years ago was they talked about the different hair types, and uh, oh yeah, and and that was very interesting. I thought. And your actual and your different races, the the hair structure is actually different, and a lot of people don't know, but you know, uh, Negroid uh, people actually have four different types of uh, uh, structures in their hair, and uh, it's actually quite interesting. Yeah, hair, hair, human hair structure is very interesting. What do you think, Tom? What, okay, what all else right. do you have, Tom? Um, okay, so this is Mark. Mark wants to know, uh, has a Bigfoot ever been clocked? How fast have they, you know, how fast can they run? And, and there's been any verification of that either by, I don't think anybody's ever hit them with a the radar, but, you know, maybe pace them with uh, either in the air with a helicopter or with uh, on ground with a car. Well, I can answer that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for those who remember Lee when we had him on the show, he took me up north of here to where he had his encounters. And he showed me this open field where the, the fence bisected it, uh, a barbed wire fence. And he saw this creature... Uh, it was it was running across the field. He, he clocked it from one fence post, and, and it was kind of a it was kind of at the beginning of the fence line or where it, or it turned. So there was a it was a corner post, and it was kind of unique. So he clocked it from that point across this open field, uh, a couple hundred yards to another fence post of similar uh, description, and he said he calculated it at forty five miles an hour. You know, from the time period it took to cross from one point to the other by the distance. That's fast. So that would, that's that's uh, that's fast. I mean, that's what a uh, a thoroughbred racehorse. Oh yeah. Normally. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh huh. Well. So that would that would uh, be logical if they're running. Uh, if you people seen them run deer down. Yes, and you, there's even a faster one. You know, I mentioned before. Um, years ago, I interviewed a police officer, a lieutenant, in Texas. And he was a canine officer, and his partner uh, was in another cruiser with his dog. And they were en route, the two cruisers, two officers, two dogs, to another location in the county. And, and I, I believe it was, after, it was after nightfall, so uh, it was dark. And they, he said they were going at a pretty good clip. He thought they were doing 80 miles an hour, but I, I kind of suspect they weren't going that fast because it's dark and you think you're going faster. But anyway... He was in the lead vehicle, and he noticed out of his right 
ve- this creature was on all fours and it came diagonally across the open field to his cruiser and he said it was around five or six feet high on all fours it paced the cruiser for a few moments then veered off and the dogs in both vehicles went absolutely crazy hmm. so and it's interesting because the dogs are trained to not react exactly yeah that was his point so the bottom line is they're pretty quick okay um wow you're not going to outrun them. Could easily, I don't could care easily who you are. run a deer down. Yeah. More likely, they ambush them. Well, you expend less energy doing it that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, that survival um, equation. You know, you want to you want to bring in more energy than you're expending. So, you know, it goes to show you would want to be more of an ambush predator than trying to run something down because you may or may not be successful with the ambush. You're pretty likely you're going to be successful, but if you aren't, you haven't burned a lot of calories. Exactly. You know, there's also the fun factor. How much fun would it be to scare the heck out of a couple of dogs and a couple of cops and cars? (laughs) (laughs) Depends if they've got a sense of humor or not. (laughs) Well, it sounds like they've got a dark sense of humor. Well, they're pretty surly (laughs) most of the time, so I I suspect they probably don't have too much of a funny bone. I think we inherited that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we have a question, and um, his, his initial is just J, so it could be Jim, could be John, or Jack, or who knows. But, um, Will, you have talked about cases where Bigfoot has actually grabbed somebody's vehicle and prevented them from going. Do you believe that is true? Yeah, I was driving one of those vehicles. <laughs> We interviewed a guy, remember, that had a similar situation, and, and immediately we, yep. we both thought of the situation happened to me. Um, a friend and I were uh, up near the town of Roy in Washington, actually in, in the Bald Hills. It's a uh, ways out from Roy, but that's kind of one of the nearer locations to it. And we were up there, and that's an area that's had a long history of activity. And we'd heard some, we'd heard some vocals up there. And I can't remember we what we were doing at the time, but I backed. I had a little uh, little Ford Capri car at the time, and I backed it into the spot by these trees. And then we went to go. I sh- it, it was a four speed, so I shifted it down, and was getting ready to leave, and the car wouldn't move. And I thought, what's going on here? I knew I knew there was nothing wrong with it. It was in great shape, and I kept I kept trying. I you know tried to back up a little bit, wouldn't back up. And I thought, well, shoot, I, I know the transmission's working okay. So I, I downshifted even lower and, and popped the clutch, and, and it was like a cork. And, you know, we didn't know until we got back to his place. And in the daylight, there was a lot of dust, you know, from the, the gravel roads up there on the car, and it was a dark brown color. So it was really easy to see markings on the car. And on either side of the quarter panel on the back, behind the passenger seat, there were these what looked like these big drag marks in the dust, you know, like something had held onto the car. You know, that's well, not good. That, no. <laughs> didn't that happen to Brenda Harris as well? I think it did, yeah. So it's it's happened a few yeah. times. Right, right. And actually, you know, talking about Lee, he had mentioned somebody, uh, there's a highway outside of um, leading from the north into Crater Lake, and, and there's a kind of a hairpin curve, you know, about a 45-degree angle, about a 90-degree angle mm-hmm. turn. And this lady was in a, 
I believe a Suburban. And if she's going around the corner, something had come out, grabbed the vehicle, and spun it around. Uh, yeah. About, a, I think, 100. Oh, I remember that, yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> what she reported it, and they said, well, it's not real common, but there are some bears that have been that do that. Bears, Darn again. Bears. Those doggone bears. <laughs> <laughs> Big bears. Oh, yeah. I've never heard of a Love bear. Poor bears. I've never yeah, heard of a bear. Yeah, they're victims, too, you know. I've never heard of a bear doing anything like that. No, no. I haven't either. Take your door <laughs> off your food. That's that's something they do. Spin your car around while it's moving? I don't think so. No. I've seen them open car doors before. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, well, no, they'll pry the door off to get your food. Yeah. <laughs> but spin it around on the highway while you're driving? I kind of doubt that. <laughs> any purpose in that. And especially <laughs> in that part of the country, you just have black bears. So. Yeah, big black bears. You know, 1,800, 1,900 oh, yeah, sure, bears. sure. <laughs> Tell me another story. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I ever see with black bears is they're gone. Yeah, they're running away. Well, you remember what Bob said in the previous segment, and and he's from that area, like he the avid hunter, and he said the only the only black bear you see is the back end of it running away from you, and they don't circle right, around. That's they right. Leave. Yes. Same same yes. thing here in Northern California. Right. I've seen and, I've seen a lot of bear and they're always heading the, heading the other way. Yeah, yeah, they see you. Poof, you know, they're you gone. only see the southbound end of a northbound bear. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, here's a funny story about that. Um, Mel Jackson was a outdoorsman. I think he might have been a professor at one of the colleges here. But he he wrote a lot of books on, on the outdoors and he would take people to these outdoor excursions and in one of his books he wrote about being down in southern oregon and he comes around a corner on this trail and he runs into mama bear and two cubs and what he expected to happen was mama defending the cubs mm. or no no she ran up the tree and left the cubs on the ground <laughs> you guys fend for yourselves some, some maternal instincts there huh <laughs> right <laughs> They're like, thanks, Mom. She says, it's okay, right, I can make more. <laughs> oh, heavens. You know, my dad said that to me one time. He, he holds his fist up and he says, you know, I can knock you out and make another one that looks just like you. I just looked at him with a blank stare and said, do you want to go through all that again? <laughs> oh, no, you're terrible. <laughs> That's what he gets for having a kid just like him. <laughs> well, Tom, we got time for one more. One more. Okay. So, last question of the day is bipedalism versus quadrupedalism. What does Bigfoot prefer? Well, what are they? What's their predominant? mode of locomotion well everybody i mean we see them a lot bipedally but we're getting more and more reports of people seeing them moving on all fours as well but it seems to be for the most part they're bipedal but they utilize that quadrupedal moving also i guess it just depends on what they're doing 
Well, that's a good point. Uh, we had a guy on about three years ago, Rich, who had an encounter with just just seeing the eyes, and it, it, it was significant enough that it freaked him out. But a couple of years later, he had no idea that these things would be on all fours, and he told me, I was talking to him a while back, and he said, <clears throat> these are his words. He goes, I saw the most ugly ass elk walking across the road. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, now I know it wasn't an elk. We all looked at, he says, about 200 yards away. We're like, that is the ugliest thing. It had scraggly hair coming off of its arms. The back was straight horizontal, no antlers. It was just this ugly looking thing. And he goes, I think it was actually one of those creatures on all fours. That's interesting that his back is horizontal. That's that's kind of what he said. Um, but you know, their legs, they have very long arms, and, and the legs are, proportionally, they're different than us. They have longer thighs and shorter, um, you know, bones mm-hmm. bet- below the knee, so. And they're just ugly-ass creatures anyway. you well, look at Well, that's true, that's true. Two legs or four legs. <laughs> I don't know, Forrest, what well, do you think, what would be the advantages well, of that? Well, I don't, um, you know, I think there's advantages to both uh, for for the animal. And if they can go both ways, it's, uh, you know, they got it all over us because we obviously uh, don't uh, move quadrupedally. But, you know, they're, uh, our knees, um, not knowing anything about the, the makeup of Bigfoot's knees, but my guess is that their knees don't lock like ours do. And um, so... If that's the case, that with your monkeys and um, apes that uh, move quadrupedally, like your chimps and gorillas and and macaques and all the rest of them that do it, um, their their knees don't lock. So it would stand to reason when, when they talk about Bigfoot. Uh, I would, I'm guessing that their knees are not built like our knees. Our knees lock, so therefore it would not be advantageous for us to walk around quadrupedally at all. Plus the, the fact of the disproportion with our arms and our legs as well. Our legs are longer than our arms, so we'd look rather awkward doing that. Our butts would be up in the air. Um, they don't, when you hear uh, people tell stories about Bigfoot quadrupedally uh, running or walking, their butts aren't stuck up in the air. Um, so um, obviously their legs are slightly shorter than uh, their arms. So, um you know, I, obviously it works to their advantage both ways because we see them do it both ways. And obviously they wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't advantageous to them. Yeah, exactly. And and that's something we're finding of having people look, you know, when they, they say they've seen them run on all fours or moving on all fours to look for knuckle marks. Uh, because I've had people ask, well, would they, how would they be able to do it? They were the hands facing down. And I said, well, they probably wouldn't. They'd be They'd be on their knuckles. Well, they could be, but, you know, uh, other primates walk uh, walk with their hands flat on the ground. You know, macaques oh, walk yeah. with their hands flat, flat on the ground, and so do uh, other uh, monkeys. Uh, it's your apes, uh, your apes like uh, gorillas and chimpanzees that are actual knuckle walkers. But we're actually getting we're actually getting knuckle marks now. That's what people are finding. Well, then that uh, would lead me to believe that they're probably knuckle walkers as well. That's what I'm thinking. But then you hear hear these uh, incidences where people say that, oh, they were moving like a spider and uh, that they've seen them walking upright on their their fingertips, too. So, I mean, 
uh, evidently they can do a myriad of things. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about that, if that's actuality or not. I mean, I'm not sure. I've had some witnesses talk about some really weird ways of them seeing a move on, you know, really low to the ground on all fours. Um, not sure what that's about yet. Well, we're just about out of time, so I guess we can wrap it up here, pick it up again next week. Any final thoughts, folks? Well, well no, as I don't usual, think so. Forrest, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. All righty. Well, with that said, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot History, Laird Meadow Road, August 21st, 1964. Roger Patterson, making his first trip to Bluff Creek, saw tracks coming down the hill across the road around an old logging landing. They were 17 inches long, 5 inches across the heel, with an average 52-inch stride. They sank in the ground an inch and a half, where his own print scarcely showed. He made an excellent cast of what appears to be the print of the original Bigfoot. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This story comes to us from Frank Hansen. It is his story and it is entitled I killed the ape-man creature of Whiteface. Is the creature a fabrication, a product of a vivid imagination, expert craftsmanship and a showman's flair for illusion, or is it really a flesh-and-blood clue to the development of the family of man? Wanted, dead or alive, the abominable snowman, also known as Yeti, Oma, Almesty, Sasquatch, and other aliases. The fugitive is a two-footed mammal known scientifically as Homo pongids, or ape-like man. Suspect has been identified as a missing link between the ape and modern man. Eyewitnesses have reported that he closely resembles the Neanderthal species of subhuman. Suspect is described as follows. Height, six to nine feet. Weight, 250 to 800 pounds. Complexion, wind-burned and ruddy. Dress, suspect's body is covered with one-inch long reddish-brown hair except for portions of the face, hands, and feet. He has been seen in the Himalayan mountains, in Russia, United States, and Canada. If some persistent hunter should capture such a creature, we might expect that fame, fortune, and a footnote in scientific history would be his reward. The enigma of the missing link has plagued scientists of the Darwinian theory for many years. The actual body of an ape-man specimen would end this controversy and prove the existence of the abominable snowman. The rewards would be considerable. Through pure chance and random circumstance, I obtained the body of such a creature. Two world-renowned scientists examined the corpse and declared it was a genuine ape-man creature scientifically identified as Homo pongids. Belgian scientist Bernard Heuvelmans declared, For the first time in history, a fresh corpse of a Neanderthal-like man has been found. 
It means that this form of hominid, thought to be extinct since prehistoric times, is still living today. The long search for rumored ape-men or missing links has been successful. Huvelman's associate, author and scientist Ivan Sanderson, reported in a national magazine that the creature was the genuine article. This was no phony Chinese trick or artwork. When the newspapers published articles on my specimen, I was astonished and then concerned to discover the creature was labeled a hoax by the prestigious Smithsonian Institution of Washington, D.C. To my knowledge, no member of the Smithsonian scientific staff has ever examined the specimen described by Dr. Huvelmans and Ivan Sanderson. I became extremely nervous when the newspapers in both the U.S. and England pointed out that if this creature is real, then there may be the question of how and why it was killed. My fears led me to an attorney and personal friend to explain the possibility of a murder charge. The Federal Bureau of Investigation and hordes of lesser law enforcement officials revealed a sudden ominous interest in my specimen. On one occasion, I had to ask my U.S. Senator for his help to get me out of an untenable situation with the Bureau of Customs and the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. My dreams of recognition from the scientific community have vanished. My attorney adequately summed up the situation one morning. Frank, if you're not careful, you'll end up in a prison cell. Now, for the first time, I want the full story on this creature to be published. I have not asked for and will not receive a single cent from Saga magazine. My main desire is to eliminate much of the supposition and conjecture about a story that has become the biggest controversy in the scientific world in the past decade. Let us start at the beginning. In 1960, I was an Air Force captain and pilot assigned to the 343rd Fighter Group in Duluth, Minnesota. I had five years to go until my retirement as a 20-year Air Force career officer and was looking forward to a quiet life on a small farm somewhere in southern Minnesota. I enjoyed being stationed in Duluth as the hunting and fishing in northern Minnesota is the best in the world. During the 1960 deer hunting season, I was staying in a small resort on the shores of the Whiteface Reservoir, approximately 60 miles north of Duluth. Lieutenants Roy Affett and Dave Allison and Major Lou Schrott were the other members of the hunting party. We left the cabin a few minutes after six on the second morning, and although I had not spotted a deer on the opening day, I was confident that a narrow neck of swamp where I had hunted was one of the best locations in the area. I sat motionless on a hillside overlooking this pine-crested thicket for almost two hours. I was about to leave for another location when a movement at the edge of the swamp caught my eye. My pulse quickened as I thumbed for the safety catch on my custom 8mm Mauser. A large doe, partially obscured by a cedar tree, was staring directly at me. Suddenly, a shot echoed from the other side of the swamp. With one frightened leap, the doe dashed out of the thicket and headed straight towards me. I raised my gun into firing position, 
just as she spotted me. Making three great leaps broadside, she scrambled back toward the swamp. I fired just as she reached the edge of the trees, and she fell, headlong, onto the ground. I bolted my rifle and tried to get off another shot, but she was up and out of sight into the heavy brush before I could take aim. I walked toward the thicket where I located large spots of blood on the frozen grass. I also discovered that the wounded doe had left a clear trail that led straight into the swamp. There was no snow on the ground, and my borrowed compass proved useless. It was against my better judgment, but I decided to follow the trail for a short distance into the swamp. I pushed slowly along, following the doe's bloody trail, expecting her to be lying just beyond the next bush. After an hour, however, I realized that it would be impossible to pack the deer out even if I did find her. I checked my bearings and decided to take just a few more steps before retracing my trail out of the swamp. Stepping over a small cedar log, I heard a strange gurgling sound just ahead. Startled, I raised my gun and listened to the noise for a moment, concluding that the deer had gone down and was strangling in her own blood. Cautiously, I eased my way toward the sound. Suddenly, I froze in horror. The middle of a small clearing... There were three hairy creatures that at first looked like bears. Two of these creatures were on their knees, tearing at the insides of a freshly killed deer. The deer's innards were scattered around the clearing, and the things were scooping blood from the stomach cavity into the palms of their human-like hands. Raising their cupped hands of fresh blood to their mouths, they swallowed the liquid. Without warning... The male leaped straight up into the air from his crouched position. His arms jerked upward, high over his head, and he let out a weird screeching sound. Screeching and screaming, he charged towards me. I cannot remember aiming my rifle, nor do I recall pulling the trigger. But a bullet must have slammed into the beast's body. As blood spurted from his face, the huge creature staggered, seemingly stunned by this unexpected happening. I do not recall ejecting my spent shell, nor do I recall firing my rifle again. In many sweat-drenched nightmares, however, I have vividly envisioned the blood-covered face lying on the ground beside the mutilated deer. I have absolutely no recollection of ever seeing the other two creatures again. They seem to have vanished into thin air. Blind with fear, I started to run. I dashed over the swampy terrain, not knowing or caring in which direction I ran. My only thought was to get away from those horrible things. I stumbled, fell, picked myself up, and fell again. I thought they were right behind me. Finally, I fell onto the frozen marshland, completely exhausted, not caring if the creatures caught me. I lay there, waiting for the attack. I have no recollection of time, and perhaps my mind blanked out. When I regained composure, there was only the natural silence of the swampland. I wondered if I hadn't fallen asleep and dreamed the whole thing. Regardless, I knew I must find my way out of the swamp. My compass, which I had borrowed from Major Schrott, 
was next to worthless. I raised my rifle and fired the three rapid shots that signal a hunter is in trouble. Nothing happened. I reloaded my rifle and fired again. This time returning shots echoed in the distance. I moved in the direction of the shots, but stopped periodically and listened intently for some familiar sound. After traveling a considerable distance, I finally heard someone calling to me. Traveling in the direction of the voice, I finally emerged onto a hilly clearing and saw a group of hunters standing around their camp. I approached, and, hiding my fright, explained that I had become lost from my hunting party that morning. Two of the hunters seemed to know where our green pickup was parked and volunteered to drive me back in their automobile. It was past noon now when we arrived back at our parked truck. Lou and the boys were waiting. I threw the compass at Lou. That compass isn't worth a cent, I complained. Huh, you're the great white hunter who got lost, someone chuckled, chiding me for my lack of wood lore. On several occasions that day, I started to mention my harrowing experience to my companions. I wanted to confide in someone, but how could I? Military retirement was less than five years away. I might lose everything if the story got out. The night surgeon might even believe I was mentally unstable and unfit for flying duty. I could be forced out of the Air Force on a medical discharge. My mind reeled with the possibilities. If I returned to the swamp, what would it prove? Had I killed the creature? Was it an escaped gorilla? Or was it a man dressed up for some deer-hunting prank? Except for being completely hair-covered, the thing seemed to have every feature of a human being. What about the two creatures that had escaped? Or had the whole thing been the product of my imagination. Everything was unreal and totally incomprehensible. Our hunting party returned home, and I spent a month wrestling with my conscience. I had been troubled with migraine headaches several years previously, and now they returned with a pounding intensity. I swallowed dozens of pills each day, as both an instructor and instrument check pilot, I always flew as aircraft commander. I often had a pilot who was neither current nor checked out for the particular aircraft we were flying, so I avoided airtime, except for a single four-hour flight near the end of the month. I knew it was impossible to continue to fly until the mystery of my experience in the swamp had been resolved. I watched the weather closely waiting for a heavy snow, which would provide good tracking conditions. I would not consider going into that swamp again without being able to backtrack in my own footsteps. On the 29th of November, it happened. The weather reported five inches of fresh snow in the Whiteface area. On Friday, December 2nd, a warm front moved in, and the snow was slowly melting, making ideal tracking conditions. By now, I had formed a plan. The following day, I took my automatic shotgun, several rounds of double odd buck shot, hooked my swamp buggy to the back of my pickup, and with Mike, my faithful dog, headed north to Whiteface Reservoir. 
passing Ranta's Resort, I proceeded to the east side of the lake. After the bug was unhooked and the chains installed on the huge DC-3 aircraft tires, I headed down the old logging trail looking for the area where we had parked our truck during the hunting season. Mike was trembling with anticipation, and I was shaking with fear. Any mishap could be disastrous. It seemed doubtful that any other human would enter this portion of the woods for the rest of the winter. I was also aware of the possibility of encountering one or more of the things, and not knowing what to expect created a fear that was almost causing me to turn back. The bug ran beautifully as I inched through the soft snow, so I turned my attention to searching for a familiar landmark. After making several lucky guesses at Wise in the trail, I suddenly recognized the small clearing where the truck had been parked. Again, almost uncontrollable fear gripped me as I parked the bug. My heart raced wildly as I pulled my shotgun from the rack and headed from my old stand overlooking the swamp. The old trail that had been taken by the wounded doe was covered with snow, so I inched in a general direction toward the scene. It was difficult to walk, as small logs covered with snow acted as built-in obstacles. I was constantly on the alert for tracks in the melting snow. Once I fell across a snow-covered log and just remained there to rest for a few minutes. Mike, working in his usual circle, jumped a browsing deer that came crashing through the thicket. <laughs> my heart leaped into my throat. I was ready to run when Mike started to dig at the body under the snow. I realized then that the events of that horrible day a month earlier had been real. I staggered to my feet, called Mike to my side, and spent several minutes staring at the huge, hairy body. Finally, I brushed the snow away from the head and noticed that one eye seemed to be completely missing. But there was so much frozen blood it was impossible to tell for sure. The face was not covered with hair, but the neck, shoulders, and stomach were caked with frozen blood. The creature's left arm was twisted under the body, but I compared the right hand with my own. This hand appeared identical to mine, except it was twice as large. As I was inspecting the creature, my fear suddenly vanished. I was now convinced I had not killed a true human being, but something similar to man, perhaps some freak of nature. Maybe it was a mutant of some type. I examined the poor creature and realized it was in a perfect state of preservation. I also noticed that the dead deer had been completely devoured by predators. Why hadn't these predatory animals eaten the flesh of the hairy thing? There was indeed a mystery surrounding this freak. I decided that the creature should not be left in the swamp. I was still concerned with the scandal that could jeopardize the retirement from the Air Force. It was impossible to dig a grave in the frozen earth. If the creature was left in the swamp... A wandering hunter might stumble over the body in the spring. An investigation by law officers might lead the authorities to me. There was only one thing to do. 
I left the swamp buggy concealed in the woods and went back to Duluth with my pickup. I told my wife that the bug had become stuck and that I would have to get a pick, a shovel, an axe, and a chainsaw. I returned to the swamp the following day and inched the bug back into the bush, cutting a trail as I went. Using an ice chisel from the truck, I chopped the creature's body from the frozen earth. Loading that hulk onto the rear platform of my swamp buggy was one of the most difficult experiences of my life. The body was rough, dead weight and was frozen solid. Finally, the icy form was laid out on the platform and I snugged it down with cargo straps that were standard equipment in the bug. When I reached the pickup, I struggled to transfer the monstrous form to the truck bed. Again, the nylon straps were indispensable. It was after dark when I pulled up to my home in the suburban military housing area of Duluth. My wife, Irene, was almost hysterical when she saw the gigantic corpse. I was now beginning to accept the creature, and finally I convinced her of the seriousness of my experience. "'What do you plan to do with the thing?' she asked, fearfully staring at the ape-like form. "'Well, I can't dig a grave. The ground is frozen solid,' I explained. Well, "'Maybe we can keep it in the freezer until spring?' We had just purchased a large food freezer two weeks earlier. But the freezer is full of meat, Irene protested. Then we'll have to give the meat away, I answered. My retirement is more important than a few dollars worth of meat. She finally agreed to my plan. Like many military wives, she was accustomed to adjusting to unforeseen and unpredictable circumstances. We put our three children to bed, waited until they were asleep, and then, with the use of straps, dragged the carcass of the creature into the basement. "'We'd better keep the thing covered,' Irene said, as she went upstairs for an old army blanket. "'I'll keep the kids out of the basement and clean out the freezer.' When I returned home after duty on Monday, I discovered my wife had cleaned out the freezer, as she had promised. However, she was almost hysterical over the thought of having that horrible thing in the basement— I don't know what it is, she confided, but it smells terrible and the odor is all over the house. Despite the stench, we entered the basement and bent the creature's arms and legs so that it would fit into the freezer. Either the body was still frozen or rigor mortis had set in. It was an extremely difficult task and we both breathed easier when the creature was completely in and the top securely fastened. We washed our hands several times and placed our clothes in the washer to soak. Later that night, we opened the basement windows for a thorough airing. Let's not tell a single person about this, I cautioned. We'll just leave it there till spring. The creature remained in our food freezer for almost a month. Then my curiosity drew me into the basement. Man or animal? a mutant human or a cross between the ape and man family. There were a hundred different explanations. I opened the freezer and discovered the creature's body was dehydrating. Certain parts of the body looked like pieces of dried-up meat. I went back upstairs and told Irene of the dilemma. If we bury it in the spring, it won't make any difference, I said. 
but if we learn what it is and decide to keep it, then it should be properly preserved. I don't know how to keep it from drying out. My wife thought a moment. Remember those Canadian lake trout that we kept for two years? We froze them in ice water, and they stayed fresh. Perhaps the thing could be preserved that way. It's worth a try. We started by pouring 20 gallons of ice water into the freezer each day. The job was completed within a week, and our incredible secret was now encased in a solid block of ice, safe from prying eyes and freezer burn. To make certain that no one could open the freezer, the door was locked and I kept the only key. When the spring thaw arrived, I was faced with another dilemma. It would require several days to melt the ice around the creature's body, and, in the process, the basement of our home would be filled with an odorous stench. I was also concerned about the danger of burying the thing. The passerby might see me digging a grave and alert the police. Transporting the body away from my home to a gravesite was equally dangerous. I envisioned a traffic accident, with a smelly creature tossed out on the pavement and a police officer staring at me as I fumbled for some rational explanation. My wife was now accustomed to having the creature in the freezer, so I decided to leave it in the basement and not press her luck. In the summer of 1961, we purchased a farm near Rolling Stone, Minnesota. In preparation for my retirement, we agreed that the family would move to the farm at that time and I would commute on weekends. I could not risk allowing a moving company to transfer our freezer, so I rented a U-Haul truck and moved all of our furniture by myself. Friends helped skid the heavy meat-packed freezer out of the basement and into the truck. A couple of fellows asked why I didn't remove the meat first, but I explained that I wanted to keep it cold inside for the long trip to the farm. Besides, I couldn't seem to locate the key in all the confusion of moving. The trip from Duluth to Rolling Stone took seven hours, and the top layer of ice had started to melt. Friends and relatives again assisted in unloading the furniture and skidding the heavy freezer into the basement. I breathed easier when it was safely situated in the utility room of our remote farmhouse. I could not get by until retirement without fear of exposure. I was concerned that the power failure might occur, so I purchased a standby generator to cope with such an emergency. It was also gratifying to know that it could now be buried at any time in our back 40 without fear of being seen. In November 1965, I retired from the Air Force after completing 20 years of active service. I joined my family at the farm and quickly became disillusioned with the inactivity of life. I now had plenty of opportunity to read and for the first time became acquainted with the many stories and legends about the so-called abominable snowman. The more articles I read, the more certain I became that the thing in our freezer was a type of snowman. I now began to make discreet inquiries about the statute of limitations on murder and learned that there was no time limit in the state of Minnesota. Because of this, the decision was made to just sit tight with our specimens safely in the freezer for a while longer. 
In December 1966, I happened to meet a veteran showman who quickly recognized my boredom of civilian life and suggested that I become a full-time showman by exhibiting a rare old John Deere tractor that I had acquired and loaned to the Smithsonian Institution. It had been returned to me from Washington, and I was showing it on highly selective basis. Take your tractor on a full-time circuit of major fairs. You won't get rich, but you'll have fun and discover a whole new world out there, he said. Suddenly, a thought dawned on me. Hey, would some sort of a frozen hairy creature resembling a prehistoric man make a good attraction? <laughs> the showman almost choked. It's a great idea, but where would you ever get such a specimen like that? Perhaps I could get one made, I said, not being able to divulge my secret. I returned home with only one thought in mind and immediately consulted with my attorney concerning the legalities of exhibiting the creature. He listened with amusement until I drove him to my farm and opened the freezer. He stared down into the cloudy ice with horrified fascination. Later, we discussed the legal aspects. There's always the possibility of a murder charge if this thing is judged to be human, he informed me. There are also laws concerning the transportation of dead bodies. I can see all sorts of legal difficulties. Well, I'm convinced the creature would make a great exhibit, I said. Isn't there any way to do it by creating a model? He lit another cigarette and thought a moment. Well, you have the original body. The authorities will be after it because this thing is the scientific find of the century. However, it might be possible to create a model, as you suggested. Maintain a record of the model's construction, but show the real creature instead. If the officials pressure you, it's a small matter to produce photos of the model taken during different phases of fabrication. Huh. Better than that, I replied. I'll even exhibit the model for the first year so that it will be accepted by carnies as a bogus show. In January 1967, I made sketches of the real creature and went to Hollywood to confer with men who make models for the motion picture industry. I talked with Bud Westmore, the director of makeup at Universal Studios. He informed me that such a model might cost up to $20,000. Westmore didn't have the time to make the creation, but he agreed to offer his technical knowledge if I needed it. He also agreed that it would be a challenging endeavor. I then consulted with a staff member of the Los Angeles County Museum. He suggested that I contact Howard Ball, an independent artist who was creating life-size fiberglass elephants to be displayed at the La Brea Tar Pits. I later engaged Ball to sculpture the carcass and mold the body. John Chambers, a makeup artist and Academy Award winner from 20th Century Fox, suggested that a small wax studio in Los Angeles could implant the hair according to my specifications. I approached Pete and Betty Coral. They agreed to do the work and implanted each hair individually with an open-end needle. I constantly directed this portion of their work, and it was magnificent. They were great artists and a pleasure to deal with. By the time the model was completed, I had another worry. 
There was no guarantee that any exhibit would make money on the fair circuit, yet I had spent several thousand dollars, some of it borrowed, to obtain the model. Despite my misgivings, I enlisted the aid of a friend in Pasadena, and we added the finishing touches to make it look as close to the specimen in my freezer as possible. The bloody eyes, broken arm, and the blood-soaked hair was carefully duplicated to match the original. It was now time to freeze the ice around the model, and this presented a few humorous moments. I rented a cold storage room from a Los Angeles ice company, and at 8 a.m. one sunny morning, I pulled in with my monstrous creation in the rear of my station wagon. A stunned executive happened to stroll by and did several double takes. "'Where are you going with that thing?' he stammered. Well, "'I've rented a storage room for a few days,' I explained. "'In our company?' he stared at the model and twisted his hands in anguish. "'My gosh, was that a living thing?' This is a food processing plant. Get that thing out of here before a government inspector sees it. Later, I arranged to ice down the model at a privately owned locker plant that had recently shut down. The final phases of my creation were completed there. I placed the model in a refrigerated coffin designed especially for the exhibit. This was done with heavy straps and a rented forklift. The coffin was transported in a special show trailer to Los Banos, California, arriving just in time for its debut with the West Coast shows. On the 3rd of May, 1967, the exhibit was opened to the public for the first time as a what-is-it type of show. Where did it come from? Curious spectators inquired. Well, it is claimed to have been found by some Chinese fishermen in the Bering Straits, was my stock reply. My cover story had been created in advance and worked very well, so I stuck to it for the next two years. As I continued along the fair circuit that year, I readily admitted to other showmen that this was a creation. All agreed it was a compelling attraction, but the model contained too many imperfections to fool anyone with an expert knowledge of anatomy. Our tour continued until November, 1967, when we closed at the Louisiana State Fair and returned to our farm home in Rolling Stone for the winter. By March 1968, I had convinced myself that it was safe to substitute the real specimen for the coming fair season. I cut off refrigeration to melt the ice from both specimens and made the switch using my farm tractor loader and an I-beam. I worked the creature into a position closely resembling the model by cutting the tendons in the arms and legs. I then started the difficult task of creating ice around the specimen. Well, this will be the greatest exhibit to hit the fair circuit, I said after the job was completed. Even a trained scientist would be shocked to see this. The 1968 season was one of the most remarkable in our history. Physicians, professors, and college students came from everywhere to see the exhibit. All pondered on the possibilities of a true missing link. At the Oklahoma State Fair, one prominent surgeon visited the exhibit nine separate occasions. Each time, he brought a different colleague. Even a high official of the state of Oklahoma tactfully suggested that 
we were not promoting our exhibit fully by showing it on the fair circuit. At the Kansas State Fair, the county pathologist was so intrigued that he sent many of his associates to see the creature. Apparently, the exhibit was brought to the attention of Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans by one of their colleagues. They called and asked permission to examine the creature. This was a grave mistake on my part. Both men were visibly impressed, but made no mention of releasing a scientific report. However, Dr. Huvelmans published an article on the Homo pongids, the ape-man, in a February 1969 bulletin of the Royal Institute of Natural Science of Belgium. The long search for the rumored live ape-man or missing link has at last been successful, he reported. Ivan Sanderson published an article in the May 1969 issue of Argosy magazine. Let me say simply, he wrote, that one look was actually enough to convince us that this was, from our point of view at least, the genuine article. This was no phony Chinese trick or artwork. If nothing else confirmed this, the appalling stench of rotting flesh exuding from a point in the insulation of the coffin certainly did. My problem started again with the publication of Huvelman's article. It seemed as if every newspaper, radio station, magazine, and television station in the world wanted to verify the existence of the creature. Calls poured in each day from London, Tokyo, Berlin, Rome, and scores of American cities. The Smithsonian Institution requested permission to inspect the carcass. This request was promptly refused. Dozens of scientists asked permission to remove a core sample of the creature, Biologists wanted hair and blood samples. Huvelmans had stated in his article that it appeared that the creature had been shot. Newspapers began to speculate on the possibility that law enforcement authorities should investigate the manner in which I obtained the creature. If the body is that of a human being, there is the question of who shot him and whether any crime was committed, an article in the Detroit News reported. With these events swarming into my life, I became a regular visitor to my attorney's office. His advice was clear-cut and direct. Frank, you had better substitute the model for the real specimen and then take off for a long vacation. This sounded like good advice, so I made arrangements to make the transfer in a cold storage warehouse. The original specimen was put into a refrigerated van and sped to a hiding place away from the Midwest. Refreezing the model took several days, and it was during this period that newspapers carried accounts of both me and the creature vanishing. During the past few months, I have been pressed for the conditions or circumstances under which I would consider giving the specimen up for scientific evaluation. Two conditions must be met before I would even consider such an action. One, a statement of complete amnesty for any possible violation of federal laws. Two, a statement of complete amnesty for any possible violation of state and local laws where the specimen was transported or exhibited during the 1968 fair season. There will surely be skeptics that will brand this story a complete fabrication. Possibly it is. 
I am not under oath, and, should the situation dictate, I will deny every word of it. But then no one can be completely certain unless my conditions of amnesty are met. In the meantime, I will continue to exhibit a hairy specimen that I have publicly acknowledged to be a fabricated illusion, and leave the final judgment to the viewers. If one should detect a rotting odor coming from the corner of the coffin, it is only your imagination. A new seal has been placed under the glass, and the coffin is airtight. The story was published in Saga Magazine, July 1970. And the story is written by Frank Hansen. Thank you for listening. Story from Orleans, California, 1952. This person's encounter was so shocking that he blocked it from consciousness for a time. He did recall the events, however, and this is what he related. I began to remember more and more of what happened. I had me a bad case of the jitters as the memory uncoiled. The first part of the story took me back to 1952, when I had gone to Orleans to start preliminary work on a logging operation with two men by the names of Lee Valeri and Josh Russell. One evening, Josh told me Lee had gone up to Happy Camp, but not having transportation back, wanted me to take the Mercury and go up and get him. I had driven the extremely crooked and dangerous road up there, but not being able to find him started back alone to Orleans. It had been raining very heavily and after going back a few miles, I found there had been a slide across the road. There was a man with a flashlight there who told me I could still go back to Orleans by way of a detour across the river. He said it was a dirt road that went through Bear Valley and could come out at the mouth of Bluff Creek a few miles below Orleans. I had been driving slowly down this road for about 20 miles, I guess, sort of daydreaming when I saw it. Dimly in the headlights, in the rain, was a shaggy, orangutan-like apparition of a human. For an instant, I had the impression the shaggy hair of the creature was a hoary blue-gray in the headlights. An ogre, I remember thinking. But the thing swiftly backpedaled off the road and behind a tree. I automatically passed it off as imagination and drove on by the spot. Suddenly, without warning, the car went into a violent and unreasonable skid, I brought the car back under control, but for some reason glanced into the rearview mirror. In the dim light of the taillights and license display bulb, I thought I could see a savage-looking face looking through the rear glass. I continued on, and when I looked again, there was no face. So again concluded it was imagination. I had gone another quarter mile, I guess, when across the road was a small six-inch sapling. I stopped the car and got out intending to drag it aside if possible. Suddenly I heard the swift thud of flying feet of something coming down the road. Reality was upon me, and I remember cursing myself for not paying attention to what I had previously seen. It was the shaggy, human-like monster I had seen in the headlights. It at once started circling around me, snarling and acting very menacing. It kept this circling up for some time and once came up quite close, and I could see its face reflected by the headlights much better. The eyes were round and rather luminous. The hair on top of its rather low and rounded head was pretty short. Its eye teeth were far longer than a human's. Also, the chest and upper part of its torso was rather bare of hair, 
and also leathery-looking. It wasn't too tall, not much more than my own five feet nine inches, although it had a stooped, long-armed posture. Then suddenly it changed tactics. It would stalk off down the road, but would come charging back, like a bat out of hell, when I started toward the car. The hour was late. The thing was becoming more and more menacing, and I was almost paralyzed by this time, paralyzed by fear. Suddenly a plan of escape, born out of desperation, popped into my mind. Since the monster seemed to think I couldn't get away, why not, when it went down the road again, playing cat and mouse, try to get in the car and smash through the sapling? This I did and sprang for the door of the car a dozen feet away. No sooner was I inside when there it was, trying to claw through the window. I jerked the car into gear, floored the accelerator, and can vividly remember the wet sapling glistening whitely in the headlights as the car slashed it aside. I remember the scream of rage and frustration it then gave. It was a curious, trumpeting sound, like the scream of a stallion and the roar of a mad grizzly. The car then felt as though it were being held back by something half-riding and attempting to stop it. But the powerful mercury proved too much for it, and after a couple hundred yards I felt no more resistance. To top this unbelievable experience off, believe it or not, I promptly forgot the whole experience. Then and there it went out of my mind. Not even the next day when Lee asked me if I had seen anything unusual on that road last night did I remember. He had come later from Happy Camp with another man hired to take him to Orleans. A few days later, an incident happened that should have brought the experience back, but didn't. Lee noticed a big dent in the grill of the car and asked me how it got there. I told him I didn't know. Incidentally, Lee told me that something had tried to push them off the road when they came through on the detour. He said there's something strange going on around here and let the matter drop. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. This story is The Frank Dan Story at Morris Creek, July 1936. Another J.W. Burns story, teacher on the Chehalis Reservation. A small tributary of the Harrison River, 1936. A well-known old Amerindian medicine man named Frank Dan, told a colorful story. Ivan Sanderson reproduces this story on page 70 of his book, The Abominable Snowman, by the kind permission of government agent, teacher to the Chehalis, Mr. J. W. Burns. This occurred in July 1936 along Morris Creek, a small tributary of the Harrison River. J. W. Burns writes of Frank's story, it was a lovely day. The clear waters of the creek shimmered in the bright sunshine and reflected the wild surroundings of cliff, trees, and vagrant cloud. A languid breeze wafted across the rocky gullies. Frank's canoe was gliding like a happy vision along the mountain stream. The Indian was busy hooking one fish after another. Hungry fish that had been liberated only a few days before from some hatchery. But the Indian was happy as he pulled them in and sang his medicine song. Then, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a fearful splash within a few feet of his canoe, almost swamping the frail craft. Startled out of his skin, 
Frank glanced upward, and to his amazement beheld a weird-looking creature covered with hair, leaping from rock to rock down the wild declivity with the agility of a mountain goat. Frank recognized the hairy creature instantly. It was a Sasquatch. He knew it was one of the giants. He had met them on several occasions in past years, once on his own doorstep. But those were a timid sort, and not unruly like the gent he was now facing. Frank called upon his medicine powers, Sula, and similar spirits to protect him. There was an immediate response to his appeal. The air throbbed, and some huge boulders slid down the rocky mountainside, making a noise like the crack of doom. This was to frighten away the Sasquatch. But the giant was not to be frightened by falling rocks. Instead, he hurried down the declivity, carrying a great stone, probably weighing a ton or more, under his great hairy arm which Frank guessed, just a rough guess, was at least two yards in length. Reaching a point of vantage, a jutting ledge that hung far out over the water, he hurled it with all his might, this time missing the canoe by a narrow margin, filling it with water and drenching the poor frightened occupant with a cloud of spray. Some idea of the size of the boulder may be gained from the fact that its huge bulk blocked the channel. Later, Jack Penny dredged it out on the authority of the Department of Hinterland Navigation. It may now be seen on the tenth floor of the Vancouver Public Museum in the Department of Curious Rocks. When you're in Vancouver, drop in to the museum, and the curator will gladly show it to you. The giant now posed upon the other ledge in an attitude of wild majesty, as if he were monarch of these foreboding haunts, shaking a colossal fist at the great medicine man, who sat awestruck and shuddering in the canoe, which he was trying to bail out with his shoe. The Indian saw the Sasquatch was in a towering rage, a passion that caused the great man to exude a repugnant odor that was carried down to the canoe by a wisp of wind, the smell made Frank dizzy, and his eyes began to smart and pop. Frank never smelt anything in his whole medicine career like it. It was more repelling than the stench of moccasin oil gone rotten. Indeed, it was so nasty that the fish quitted the pools and nooks and headed in schools for the Harrison River. The Indian, believing the giant was about to dive into the water and attack him, cast off his fishing lines, and paddled away as fast as he was able. Sanderson included this story not so much for anything it might add to the general picture of the Sasquatches in the area. There is ample evidence of that in any case. But to exemplify the type of tale told by the Amerindian that caused the white man to doubt his veracity. Frank Dan was an old and respected medicine man, living by the precepts and beliefs of his ancestors. Thus, his interpretation of events had to be in accord with his position in the community. It is a straightforward account, namely, that while fishing, a Sasquatch appeared, hurled some rocks at the old man, and stank like hell. The induced landslide and the weight of the second rock hurled, or perhaps merely dislodged into the river, as well as the giant's implied curse, are pure embellishments. 
Even the mass exodus of the trout might well be perfectly true, and due to a cascade of boulders rather than to a stink in the air that they could, of course, not smell in the water. Besides, Frank Dan's medicine came off second best, and he manifestly fled. He couldn't explain this fact away, so he just did the best he could, so not to show up in too poor of a light. In fact, Mr. Burns records that Frank Dan gave up being a medicine man from then on, saying that his powers had been finally defeated. That would seem to be the act of an honest man. That's the end of the story. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open.